When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I got into the YouTube game quite late, um, kind of post Gamergate 2017, high era of uh, the cringe compilation videos. Mm. And uh, because uh, I don't know if you know, I was at Evergreen State College. I was on the ground. Yeah, I, I witnessed the whole thing and I tried to do what I could to put it out there, the full story. Um, but that's I, I what I know you from is the Evergreen story. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's so. how I'm known that and uh, this gender thing. But um I'm less familiar with that, but uh, yeah. You hit on that though. I mean, you hit on a lot of these different, uh, we cover the same ground, but you were okay, there yeah. before me. You were already there before me. Probably a year before you, because I started in 2016. You did? So yeah, yeah I was a pretty, I was pretty much a late comer as well, but I, I kind of beat a lot of the normie right wingers or the religious right wingers and making YouTube channels so I was one of the first people who was kind of, well, I should say religious and reactionary at the same time. These days, that's pretty common. So, yeah, so <laughs> it's, you, it's just when you bring it to YouTube, right? Yeah. You were uncool before it was cool to be uncool. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was square before it was cool to be square. <laughs> well, the, the first thing that I watched from you, and it was a while back, and I didn't watch any of your other work. I think I watched another video, but was your mm-hmm. uh, takedown of, uh, not takedown, but your uh, thesis that J.R.R. Martin could not finish Game of Thrones. And it was a oh, yeah. bit of analysis. Um, and then I forgot about you, but then this year people have been bringing you up, bringing you up, bringing you up. I have had Aaron. McIntyre on and uh, they're like you have to check out the distributist not distributivist (laughs) but distributist and the past six weeks I've just basically watched 60-80% of your content it's just brilliant it's it's so well put together and it's so clear and concise and what you're doing concise it's not but I appreciate it Well, it's I, thorough, not but being concise. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't, you don't, uh, you don't waste words though. I mean, you take a lot of time to get to your point, but you don't waste your time. It's a shame that I can't make more video essays. The video essay has kind of died a little bit as a form and I have a lot less time after, after starting a family. So yeah. at least for the moment, that's kind of fallen by the wayside. What, what I do now is I sometimes write Substack essays and then re- read those with accompanying pictures. But the sort of more elaborate video essay that really gained prominence in 2014, I think has really fallen away during the COVID years. For some reason, very few people make them anymore. And they do a lot. I mean, they surprisingly, it used to be that they did a lot better than streams. Now for the political ones, at least they do a lot worse than streams. Mm -hmm. So there's very little incentive to make them. And I have very little time to to play around with. So Mm -hmm. it's a shame I can't make more of those. Oh yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah, they do. Especially if you have like a huge stack of notes that you need to consolidate into a video. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. So uh, what I noticed or what I got really excited about uh, your content was that it seemed like you were mapping out a place that 
is five years ahead of the curve uh, with regard to a lot of the way that the normie or subnormie, I guess I'm kind of mm. slightly less normie than more people, people who are normie than me, but I'm kind of centrist post IDW. I was kind of in the mm. IDW mix and watching that particular phenomenon kind of gain prominence and then break apart. And you see a lot of people, uh, Paul Vanderclay, I don't know if you know him. Actually, I think um, I've been on his really show. do know him. Actually, he he's um, from. I, I I actually know him in real life. Okay. Uh, I met him a few times, but I I kind of moved away before I could actually do an interview with him on my show, like personally. Okay. So so we I, I shouldn't say in real life. I met thing. him several times, but yeah, yeah. But he he uh, a couple uh, months ago he talked about uh, this phenomena of uh, a flood coming through and joining all these different streams and then the flood kind of recedes and everybody kind of goes back down to these different kind of areas right and the uh, you see a lot of tension and it's been a while and I'm using the IDW just because it was it's kind of familiar to a lot of people you had uh, Dave Rubin uh, Ben Shapiro Jordan Peterson Brett Weinstein Eric Weinstein and uh, mm-hmm. a couple other guys Sam Harris. They were all together Harris, yeah. for a very particular time. And now they kind of, over the course of time, they, they've uh, disaggregated in a way. And one thing that was always missing from that particular discourse was a solid right-wing critique because they're basically all centrists or liberals. Dave Rubin says he's right-wing. I don't think he's really meaningfully he's not, no. right-wing. But um, there, And then you have Candace Owens, you have Prager U, you have these kind of popular-ish right-wing um, you know, channels or uh, attractors, but you, what you've laid out is hardcore right-wing thought based on Yarvin. I think is that fair to say that Yarvin? Yeah, Yar- Yarvin was my influence, and he got me to read. I mean, this is what what's called Italian elite theory, and this is what RN has become sort of the supreme popularizer of. But I got there a little bit before RN and sort of made the initial reiteration of it. Uh, Gar- Curtis Yarvin's ideology is a, a rehashing of general right-wing ideas that came out of people like De Maestra and then later Carlyle in the 19th century, and that were further, I don't want to say weaponized, but sharpened by people like uh, Mosca and Pareto and then Burnham. And you could also throw Carl Schmidt in there. But what they, what they amount to is a large critique of the Enlightenment and one that I haven't heard very many good answers for. Uh, and because of this, they have, I think, described a lot of the phenomenon that we see going on in the modern world that is not very well explained by the other sides. And to this day, I have never heard the IDW actually answer these critiques. Uh, they kind of pretend like they're not there. Uh, and they end up, and when they pretend like they're not there, you get ridiculous things like the the last Sam Harris interview by the by the trigonometry people, which which puts on display it, it puts on display the flaws of liberalism and how even Sam Harris doesn't really believe it at the end of the day, and, and what he believes in is not what he says he believes in. And this, again, you know, this is, this critique's been there. It's been in the ethers for 200 years and it's been prominent on the internet since the days of unqualified reservations by Curtis Yarvin. And none of these people I feel have given a really good answer to it. And uh, I think they don't give a good answer to it because it's sort of politically infeasible. And it, it sort of prophesizes the death of the various systems people want to 
preserve. And because of that, it's sort of kryptonite for the liberal mind in the broadest sense of the word. Well, when I try to bring up soft critiques uh, from this branch of uh, thought or or the right wing to liberals, died in the world liberals who are Mm. basically uh, anti-woke or that's how they gain um, their um, cred as political thinkers because they're trying to break down or resist the woke. One thing that they seem to not want to lose from liberalism it's hard to pin down what they mean by liberalism, but it seems like they don't want to give up their freedom or the gentleman's agreement of rational discourse. It seems like, but it seems like liberalism doesn't have antibodies to resist what has become through the woke. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It was never really designed to do that because, I mean, I don't know. There's there's a lot of different threads of criticism here. But you may notice this pattern in liberalism that when it's going up against a conservative or a reactionary or a traditionalist opponent, it always wins and it feels very confident in winning. But then when it pushes back against its left flank, it can never consolidate itself and it always fades away. And there's a lot of different reasons for this. Uh, the, 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 I mean, we can sort of list off the, the, the two broad ones, though. There's sort of a a near and a far reason why, as reactionaries say, Cthulhu always swims left. The first one is that the way public opinion is moved is not in some kind of mode of marketplace of ideas. It's moved through institutions that are governed by experts. And these experts have what is functionally equivalent to our religion that keeps them all ideologically aligned. If they didn't have a, a, a centralized religion, then the institutions would tear themselves apart in total war. So what, what you see is sort of a Darwinian pressure to, to be aligned as a class, and they develop sort of these pseudo-ideologies. These would be religions, except that they have to call, they have to say it's not a religion so that it seems secular by Enlightenment terms. For the last two or 300 years, we have had a, a sort of ruling expert or consensus religion that has been fundamentally friendly to the leftist vision of the world. That's and and because of that, they are always they always err on the side of preferring the leftist to the the right winger or the traditionalist. The other mode, the other reason why Cthulhu always swims left is that in democratic systems or in contests of voice, there is always a a pressure against regulation, against constraint. Uh, against discipline and towards indulgence, towards breaking down things. Because when you when you break down things, when you break down ordered systems, it's like burning a piece of wood. It releases energy. And when you break down an order system, it releases power. And so anytime there's a discussion or a democratic dialectic, this is, I'm quoting Nick Land here, this is him paraphrasing a lot of ideas that came out of uh, the reactionary school of the late 19th and early 20th century. But when you when you have a democratic dialectic, the pressure is always to sort of deconstruct and break down because the, in, in that process, there's an implicit promise of gaining power and prominence for the people involved in that or just gaining pleasure. And because of that, there's this sort of slow entropic draw down the hill such that when people get very, very uh, weak, they tend to get very, very lacks. And by that measure, by the definition of left wing that Carlyle and later Yarvin uses, they get more left wing. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. an odd uh, tension between the uh, entropic 
path towards the loosening of restraint and the encroaching or the momentum of the state creating more and more regulation. So there is more Mm -hmm. and more restraint by this left wing force, this Cthulhu, this system that they want to encroach more and more into regulating more and more of life while at the same time freeing people to be less and less self-regulated. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you'll notice that this operates in in two different ways. I, I sort of left out another fundamental force of reactionary power dynamics, and that is power also always wants to consolidate, sort of for the same reason that there is always one central organizing religion inside institutions. There's also a Darwinian incentive to consolidate power because consolidated power will always be unconsolidated power. So the, 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 the pressures in Toto, what they, what they want is they want to consolidate power and they want to break down all rival power centers. So what does that mean? That means that the, the natural bureaucratic incentive will be to try to destroy traditions that make people disciplined and independent and encourage practices that leave people dependent short-sighted and atomized so that they will be reliant on an ever centralized bureaucracy that obviously is practicing this sort of post-enlightenment, what what Garvin calls universalism, but we could call it post-enlightenment non-theistic Christianity or some form of it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so to try to define terms, what does reactionary mean? And it doesn't really mean anything. I mean, okay. Reactionary. Well, it's hard to say because reactionary is just a word that the French revolutionaries used for their opponents. I don't know who the first person to use it is, but for, for our purposes, for purposes of neo-reaction, the most relevant person in the development of reactionary is Joseph de Maistre, who is a counter-revolutionary against the French revolution, even though, I mean, he, he had his prominence about 30 years after the, the revolution and mostly in Russia. But he was a Frenchman uh, who was anti-revolutionary and therefore reactionary. And he was a huge critic of the Enlightenment. And he joins a number of other more minor figures as early 19th century um, critics of the Enlightenment that, that, that were actually, that, that, that came after the Enlightenment who weren't just saying things like, uh, who weren't just using ancient authors like Aristotle or uh, appeals to a religion to critique the Enlightenment. They were actually sort of critiquing the Enlightenment through the, the rules of discourse that the Enlightenment itself had set up and therefore were recognizable more as philosophers and less as people, again, wielding sort of ancient political theories like Aristotle or people who were uh, just defenders of the church and throne. Hmm. And so generally, when people say reactionary, they mean a critic of the Enlightenment and the ideas the Enlightenment spawned. Typically, what it means in in modern context is a right-wing critic of liberalism in the broadest sense. It's not that we mean that we hate everything that liberalism has produced. It's it's not to say, I I love liberty. And, you know, the famous book, Burnham's Machiavellians, the subtitle was Radical Lover. Was it Radical Lovers of Liberty? Radical Defenders of Liberty? Uh, I I actually really like the concept of liberty and independence, but the the Enlightenment model of liberty and independence is, is not accurate. And it contains within it the seeds of its own destruction. 
And that is what people like Joseph de Maistre point out and what who, how, later Carlyle points out and what's repeated by other critics of liberalism like Carl Schmitt in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, we could go into these things, but it, it, it kind of, where, where it finds us is in basically the situation we are in now where it doesn't look like the liberal principles are really working. And even the people who defend liberalism don't seem like they actually understand it. Like Sam Harris's talk to trigonometry is a good example of this. It seemed like he had completely, he didn't even understand how liberalism was supposed to work as if, you know, as if a politician you disliked being really, really bad is somehow justification to in totally manipulate the discourse and information flow inside a free society or supposedly free society. Uh, and, and that belies that Sam Harris's thought process isn't as, it's not as he presents it. It's not, the way he wants you to think about his thought process is that he, he believed nothing and then he read a bunch of peer-reviewed papers and he came to this liberal centrist worldview, internationalist, rationalist, scientific ideas, innovator, to quote Sam Hyde. Um, this is absolutely not the case. What Sam Harris was was absorbed into a particular moral system, into a particular godless religion that, that was the same religion that absorbed uh, Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and and he was not he did not derive his political preferences from reading peer-reviewed studies he he derived them because he was part of this moral tradition that's how he came to them and really what's proceeded beyond that point is that he he's his rationalization and when he encounters Donald Trump he he reacts by discarding his liberal principles because he recognizes Trump as a threat to the reigning oligarchy that that holds his his religion in a position of power. And although I don't think he admits this to himself, he understands that if that oligarchy loses power, the the sort of, I was an atheist in the old days. And what you realize very quickly is that the default does a lot for them, if, if that makes sense to you. Uh, once they tear down God, they think that like they're all their completely subjective views on the world win by default. And that's sort of Sam Harris's thing. If you read his moral landscape arguments, they're really they're, they're all circular logic, right? They're all like, this is the best moral system by the standards of the moral system that I picked. <laughs> and it's ridiculous, right? And so once those moral systems are taken down, once the religion goes away, the average person that discards a belief in God isn't going to be a rational centrist believer in human rights. He's going to be a complete nihilist who believes mind makes right. Mm-hmm. That's the default human mode, not like Sam Harris's cool faculty room demeanor and, and, and very refined liberal progressive, but not too progressive morals. Mm-hmm. And I think I whether Sam Harris admits he understands this at an animal level, he does understand this. And that's why we find ourselves in this ridiculous cognitive dis- dissonance. The same thing with the Biden administration. I think just today they they basically declared like the Republican Party terrorists. I don't know exactly how to interpret this, but I've seen clips going around saying of, um, Ka- was it Catherine Jean-Pierre uh, saying that the, the MAGA are a threat to democracy? Oh, how does a democracy work if the opposition party is a threat to democracy? 
Does that even sound like it makes sense? Yeah, yeah. I think she called them extremists, and uh, the Biden yeah. administration have, have been rolling out increasing rhetoric uh, in, in the lead up to the uh, midterm elections. They're calling semi-fascist, fascist. They're starting to adopt these. These people yeah. are evil. If you vote these people with these people or you know these people, they're dangerous, they're bad, and they need to be ignored or taken care of. And all they have is AR-15s. But don't worry, we have nuclear bombs and uh, <laughs> and fighter jets. So we're the good guys. We have the power. I don't think this is what John Locke was imagining when he was imagining some kind of, uh, you know, well, I, th- I think it's Montague, uh, the, the the division of the separation of powers and the, the organization of a republic for for the purposes of the common good. This is not what they have imagined. And Hmm. it's actually more in keeping with the the original form of the Republic, which was under Oliver Cromwell, which was essentially a Puritan religious theocracy. Uh, This, and and I don't know, I mean, I guess the the problem is I don't, I'm kind of looking for some pushback here, but Mm -hmm. we're sort of getting into questions that that just don't really have a lot of good answers to them. It, It seems from the perspective now that dual party democracy is a function of a particular period in time, because without sort of the regulations of, of common traditions surrounding liberalism okay. that, that really derive from Christianity, it just evol- uh, devolves into power grabbing because once all morals are up for grabs, then, then why would anyone relinquish power? Mm-hmm. There's a uh, meme that I saw the other day. I'll have to try to find it. Uh, where there's a building that's about to collapse, and there's a bunch of uh, four by eights or these studs, like kind of pushing it up. And it says the entire U.S. legal framework, and then reasonable. The word reasonable is the only thing that's propping it up. And I think we we appeal yeah. often to common sense, but the common sense is not taken for granted. It's instilled. It it comes from somewhere that common sense, that reasonableness, there's no explicit definition of reasonable. It's a mode of being and you have to actually have it instilled. And once the populace forgoes the foundation of it, which I I would assume you're saying that it it comes from a common tradition, that these common values come from a common tradition, these common sense, common sense comes from a common tradition. Ultimately, they come from religion, basically. Yeah. Okay. The project of the 20th century among elites was essentially to keep mainline Protestant or mainline Protestant, mainline reform Protestant religion, but get rid of God and Jesus. So you'd have all of the opinions about how the world would, should be like coming from liberal mainline reform Protestants of the early 20th century, but they wouldn't talk about God or Jesus because that sounded like a religion. And the whole point of the 20th century was to make it seem like the people who had conquered the world were just in possession of some turbo ideology that was totally undefeatable, that was totally irresistible. And everyone was just going to be converted to this ideology the second they came in contact with it. The thing is, is that that's not really what happened. What, what happened is that our military conquered the world and we got really, really rich by being one of the largest industrialized countries. And we were able to bribe people to adopt our ideology or they adopted it because they were hoping to get some of that wealth and power. And once America no longer, once its dominance in that dimension faltered, there was nothing holding the apparatus up. Furthermore, as, as the, as progressivism progressed, 
its connection to core Christian tenets weakened and weakened and weakened. And in, until it became more like a cult of politics, more something like you'd see in, in actual classical Marxism or classical, classical uh, Leninist Marxism, as you'd see in the old Eastern Bloc, where the religion is the political party itself. And, and that more and more is what's becoming the ideolo- ideology of, of the left. It's becoming a religion of the bureaucracy itself, uh, the, the worship of the experts themselves. Mm-hmm. So is that the direction? It's uh, the, the eschaton or, or the, the final paragon of a good society is that which is ruled by these so-called experts, these people who know things, these big brains in jars. Kind of like, yeah, that well, that that's 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 the that's what they imagine. What they don't see is that as they put more political power, as they give the experts more political power, the experts themselves become more politically corrupted. Uh, there's lots of sort of Mm. banal quotes that come out of the Enlightenment regarding power, but if I, I would, I would hope that reactionaries save the famous. I don't know if this is a misattribution, but it certainly is a famous attribution to Lord Acton that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Once the, the reason why expert consensuses were more or less reliable in the 19th century was, and, and I'm copying this from from Yarfin and other thinkers and the paleoconservative school, but once the reason why it was at least a little bit reliable in the early 20th century was that these experts con- were apolitical for the most part. All they did was sat around, sat, sit around and argue over what was true. But at this stage, hmm. uh, the university system is more or less a function of the United States government. It's how they train their new ruling class. It's also a rite of passage and how they dole out rewards. And those rewards are professional jobs hmm. that, you know, a, a lot of them don't even really need to exist, to be honest. Don't tell them and, that. It, well, yeah. And, you know, so this is, this is. Uh, the the eschaton, it, 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 as far as progressivism is concerned, the eschaton, as far as Sam Harris is concerned too, uh, the the final destination is increasingly intelligent experts making increasingly accurate decisions about how to manage an increasingly large number of decisions. The problem is, is that this ignores the question of morality and what is a good decision and what is bad. Uh, it, it ignores the question of skin in the game, whether these experts actually are have the best interests of the people they're deciding for at heart. You see this in the World Economic Forum and George Soros, where it's obvious that these bureaucrats don't have the best interest in the people they want to mold. Hmm. And, and it, the, the final question is that, uh, eventually, the political the political order corrupts the bureaucrats themselves, and they they their their bureaucratic decisions are influenced more by what gives them power than by what actually is true or false. Mm-hmm. And the combination of these three things creates a uh, a governance structure, what what Burnham called the managerial state, that governs an increasingly large number of things with an increasingly small amount of competence or a, or a, a rapidly diminishing amount of competence. Mm-hmm. And this is what, this is how you get, you know, a bureaucracy that rules everything inside the city, but they can't keep the trash off the streets or the crime rate rate from spiking, but they're, they're going to stop you from using a plastic straw mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. stuff like this. It's, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous what they enforce and they don't enforce. You have in London, they, they've arrested people for using memes, but they just had a big carnival where like several people were shot and one died in the Notting Hill Carnival. It was a complete mess. 
And, and so this is, this is the, the eventual um, fate of these systems is they, they, they decrease the, the competence of the government and subsequently they decrease the competence and independence of the population itself because the, the, the government declining in, as the government declines and declines in its ability to hold the loyalty of the people, it will seek to alleviate the problem by making the people more dependent on its services mm-hmm. in order to hold off rebellion. Yeah. And, and, and right. That's the stage we're in right now. Yeah. And yeah. demonize people who resist it or question it. Yes. That's, that's, and, and you see this, this is the stage we're in right now. And there's been a lot of, te- I mean, if, if this were the Roman, I, yeah. I think if this were Rome, we would be overwhelmed with barbarians already. But this being the modern world, there's a lot of technological barriers that prevent that that collapse from happening very quickly. Mm-hmm. So we, what we're seeing is just this slow degradation of everything, the third worldization of everything, as they say. And this is another famous quote from Unqualified Reservations. The first world is the past. The third world is the future. And it's, um, um, <laughs> well, it's, it's the opposite. Of what it's, it's the opposite of what us '90s kid. I think you're a '90s kid like me. That's the opposite of what we were taught in the late '90s. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, um, but it's, it's true. You know, America is more third worldy than it was when I was a kid. It, we have iPhones. That's the that's the thing that improved. We have flat screen televisions. But like, when was the last piece of technology that actually made your life better? <laughs> that you that you remember the iPhone, maybe. Maybe. And since then, Maybe. it's just been more pixels, fast yeah. internet speeds, with, with a side order of this this creeping AI technology that is, it's really more menacing than it is useful, to be honest. Hmm. There are in, interesting and novel uh, uses to it. I was just speaking with somebody uh, yesterday who's developing an AI to try to track the spread of gender ideology through Gen Z uh, uh, by by looking at the chat posts and going through the forums and trying to see different markers of how this ideology has uh, become a social contagion. So on that level, sure. the AI is pretty interesting if it can start to give us an accurate view of the world, a map of uh, uh, some sort of human reality. But, but, you know, you take that one step further than the, what, what obviously the managers are going to want to use this for is let's map the contagion of ideology that opposes ours so we can stamp it out. Yeah. Yeah. They literally did that to the right wing in 2019 and they were successful in stamping most of it off of the major platforms. Uh, wait, and 2019 with, with Alex Jones and uh, among several. Starting with Alex Jones, but creeping down to most other content creators, there is a huge purge of yeah. what was called the alt-right in 2017, but which had since then been just termed the general dissident, right? And this this... It wasn't just necessarily the banning; it was also the throttling of of various political YouTube channels. And you'll see papers like how to track alt right ideology as it permeates through the network. And yeah. the the concept is okay, fine. You know, you can. It, it is actually useful to model ideas as if they were diseases. But once you model ideas like diseases and once you manage them like diseases i mean where for is your where is your precious enlightenment now may i ask <laughs> you know, are you well, you're, you're protecting the enlightenment people from... yeah we're protecting the enlightenment from all ideas that that are i mean the, have you ever heard of the paradox of tolerance by karl popper yeah 
It's a class. Yeah, I mean, this is this is taught to university kids like me and you, and it's it's presented. I, I can't believe that they ever pulled this one over on us. It's the it's 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 the it's the biggest piece of circular logic bullshit ever put over on us. But it's presented in a way that really seems like it's profound. Karl Popper was a liberal thinker, and his his concept was to sort of update people like John Stuart Mill and John Locke so that they'd be ready for the 20th century. And I think he wrote Open Society and Its Enemies and a variety of other ones. I hope I'm not misattributing that, I may, maybe. But um, the he's very famous for this paradox of tolerance idea. And that's the, you'll see the bread tube and the lefties love sending this meme around where it's, you can't tolerate Nazis because the Nazis tolerate the liberals and then the Nazis take power and then the Nazis ban the liberals, right? So we have to ban the Nazis. Yeah. Okay, and that's very cute, right? But um, pretend like you don't know what a Nazi or a liberal is, uh, and, and you just see Team Red and Team Blue, right? And so Team Blue says, well, we have to ban the Nazis because if they take power, they'll ban us. And then Team Red says, well, we have to ban, or, sorry, Team Team Red says we have to ban Team Blue because if they take Team Blue takes power, they'll ban us. And then Team Blue says we have to ban Team Red because if they take power, they'll ban us. So it's just two sides saying that they have to preemptively ban the other person. Uh, and the only person, and, and the reason why they have to ban them is because they're intolerant of the in-group. It, it's just pure power politics, but it's masquerading as if it were some kind of profound derivation of liberal rationalism. People have said, like, you know, you, we, we make fun of the Communist Party. The Communist Party maintains that it's totally free speech. But it says, in order to make the only people that can maintain free speech are the Communist Party. So all, obviously, you have free speech to participate in anything, as long as it doesn't threaten the Communist Party. Because if it threatens the Communist Party, then the Communist Party will be overthrown and you'll lose your free speech, right? <laughs> but that's what liberals say. If liberalism is overthrown, you lose your free speech. So we have to, we only can allow all ideas that allow for liberalism. Uh, this is a ridiculous concept. It's 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 self-referential, but but it organizes a lot of how we think about the circulation of ideas in the modern world. Mm-hmm. One, uh, and I'm not going to be able to represent Yarvin's ideas correctly or perfectly, but one solution that I think he's proposed is that you have a purple emperor. You have somebody who takes the political power, consolidates mm-hmm. it completely, and then depoliticizes it. So you don't have people constantly arguing. You, you limit the scope of power and then and so that people can be free to do things other than politics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So that's excellent, but the, it's not necessarily, I mean, Yarvin's of the idea that it has to be a purple emperor. Uh, I, I'm, this is the main split between. No, he said like blue myself. in, oh, sorry to interrupt, but uh, in his interview with uh, Sank Unger, uh, he said that he would prefer a Democrat uh, emperor. Uh, sure. Kind of but, he, but his idea is the emperor has to be neutral in terms of the culture war. I don't think culture. that is, yeah, that's possible or admirable or anything else like that but that's a that's actually i'm i'm sort of off the actual critique of this yarvin's idea and i don't know if this is exactly his idea but this is an idea that he certainly popularized is the idea and it's it's correct i believe uh, the the marketplace of ideas insofar as it works a necessary condition is that it be depoliticized once political power is exchanged in the marketplace of ideas People will, pref- will people will choose power over truth. Yeah, For, or people will choose. 
I mean, do you remember high school? I had, I was big into math and I was big into debate. And uh, one day it, it, it kind of, um, I, I just completely destroyed this person in a debate in that high school debate. And I felt really proud of myself. And I, you know, there was a girl I liked and I was, you know, I looked very powerful, just demolishing this person's argument. And then I'm walking home. I thought to myself, well, hold on a minute. If, if, if debate was just the same thing as mathematics, I, mean, I, I got a math problem, right? Uh, why, why aren't people like attracted to me because I did the integral, right? Why is, why is it more important that I work through the logic of, of X, Y, and Z political position? You know, it, it, it should be as impressive as solving a math problem, right? But, mm-hmm. but for some reason, right, the, 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 the fact that you're talking about something that actually carries power means that if you win a political engagement, you're important. You're somebody who we need to, we need to actually gravitate towards. The opposite sex likes you more, right? All of those kind of um, dopamine hits you're getting from being right inside a political contention are exactly what contributes to it being something that is not, is not very conducive to truth. And, and very, very conducive to, to, to falsehood for a political purpose. Dump trillions of dollars in conditional funding into that system and you get way, 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 way more corruption. Yeah. And uh, that's what we've done. So Yarvin's idea is that if we completely depoliticize the, uh, the, uh, the country or the world, perhaps, then, then open discourse could resume. Uh, you, you know, women would give, would give you absolutely no credit for being an activist. I'll say that because activism would be boring. Activism, your activism would matter about as much as you being a really, really good DM in Dungeons and Dragons because you're not going to change the world because you can't. <laughs> you don't have that political power to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 and because of that, the only people who will care about politics are the nerds that actually care about things like uh, the accuracy of, of events and the war of the roses. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that, but oh, sure. You know, it's not very sexy, but that will get you the truth a lot, a lot faster. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's, that's the Arvin's idea, his additional idea. And I know he said, you know, I prefer blue Caesar in Shanky. I actually didn't watch the interview because I watched like five seconds and it seemed really cringy, but it was I, I know cringy. he, he <laughs> regardless of whether he was trying to sort of entice Shank Uger with the idea of a blue Caesar. Yeah. Garvin has said many, many, many times that the only way for a Caesar to exist is to end the culture war. This is why in some sense, I agree with him in the sense that I think it's important that it appear that the culture war ended in the tie but it, the 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 victory will only work if basically the idea is that body progressivism just go off and silently die while we crown them victory in theory. Okay, so uh, that's are you, are you suggesting that maybe uh, progressivism is a religion wherein heaven or the spiritual battle is a political battle? It politicizes everything. It's uh, the personal is political, right? It. it it transubstantiates yeah. everything into a power, maybe. That's yeah. That's you, you've hit on one problem. That wasn't the exact problem I was thinking on of, but one big problem is that there, there's no way you can convince. Uh, I, I this is certainly not how the progressive religion started, but in its current stage, starting in around the '60s, 
the the religion of progressivism ceased to become some kind of mythopoetic vision of the human soul and became instead an idolization of the political process or the quote-unquote democratic political process not really democratic but the, the 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 democratic political process became itself god for for progressives can and so I it's impossible it to imagine them functioning in a, a political system. Their the religion would lose its God, basically. Oh, sorry. What was that? Just an analogy, um, and maybe you could correct me or, or make sure. it better. It's like going from "It's a Small World After All" with the Disney song, which is just like a yeah. happy, merry, everybody's a, 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 a stereotype of themselves, to yeah. "We Are the World," which is a song where all of these musicians come together to raise funding. So the song isn't. Yeah. Uh, transcendent it's about you know, it's about feeling good to raise money to save ethiopia from starvation right so yeah exactly and you know my i have a young son and it, i i don't know if i should let him watch Sesame Street, but i do because i watched it when i was a kid and uh there i i had to skip some of the songs which are really terribly they're progressive claptrap um, okay yeah uh but but one of them is is a song about how we're going to make the world a better place. Like all the Muppets in their hands, we're going to, we're going to change the world. We're going to make the world a better place. It's all these two-year-olds. Uh, this is absolutely insane. How are you going to make the world a better place? But this is what you're, this is what you're raised to believe in that somehow by, by the force of your belief in human goodness, that is somehow going to transform the world into a better place, regardless is if you know anything about the world, regardless if you can describe its problems, just your presence and will inside an environment will make the world a better place. I don't, again, this is, I don't know if it, there's this quote from Greta Thunberg, and I don't know, it might not actually be real, but it's a meme. And somebody says, uh, says to her, well, do you have any solutions for the problem of global warming? And Greta Thunberg replies to them, well, well my role is to demand solutions, not to provide them. Like, what does that mean? Like, what, what is what? What utility is demanding solutions you can't provide? I, I, that that's absolutely meaningless. The same way it's absolutely meaningless for two-year-olds who don't understand the world to march around saying how they're going to change it. Uh, the, these are concepts that don't make any sense outside of this sort of religion of democracy. And I, I, I think people, you know, obviously, it's setting them. It's setting them up to believe in the experts. It's it's setting yeah. them up to put their faith in the priest class who knows how to solve these problems. Like their job isn't to understand anything; it's to trust those who do and yeah, yeah, blindly I mean, trust them to a certain degree. This is something you you not found in bread tube a lot. Is they really don't like analyzing. Uh, they don't like sort of going. They they love studies. They hate data. Uh, they they love expert opinions, uh, but they don't like breaking down the logic of how they got to a position methodically. What, what they what they want to do is they want they want to go to the experts, like fill up on the right ideas, and then carry those ideas to the public and sort of like toss them out there like chicken like like pigeon feed. Uh, they're they're distributors of the right ideas. Their their job isn't to mull them over or to make independent decisions. It's just to channel the right ideas out to the broader world, which is perfect for the social media age. It's perfect for YouTube or for TikTok, yeah. right? Because you know no one wants to actually you know I there's this um 
uh, there's this leftist thing, read theory, they read theory, read theory. Well, I've got this like book, Hegel, reason in history. Uh, this is a classic, what they would consider a theory. It's German idealism. I'm pretty educated and I can't, I mean, to, to make heads or tails of, of Hegel as a primary theoretical source is just almost beyond me. I can understand what he's saying, but I can't, I could never walk you through the methodically the lines of the, the reason why he's making a jump from one inference to another. And, and, and if that's theory, then what, what the heck are people doing? Uh, TikToker is saying, read theory. Uh, it's meaningless, right? It's, mm. it's a ceremony that makes it sound like they're participating in some intellectual process, but they're just distributors of ideas that have been developed by the bureaucracy. Maybe you can't understand Hegel because you're not a part of the elect. Did you ever, <laughs> maybe you haven't been christened yeah. in the leftist uh, church? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, actually, I would respect that if, if, if they actually if they actually came out, this is, if they formalized it and said, these professors are the praised class and they're, they're just going to come up with the correct ideas and they've consulted the bones and they decided that the climate gods are angry and they need a sacrifice of Europe's energy grid. So, you know, Europe's energy grid's got to go down this winter so that the climate gods can be satisfied. That's something that I, I kind of would, Obviously, not being of that religion, I wouldn't commend it or agree with it, but I, I kind of respect its honesty, at least dialectically. And so, um, you know, but the, pro- the problem is, is, is all of these voices joining in assent. And you think that you're getting the opinions of a lot of people. You're really only getting the opinions of a few people because it's, it's a few people and everyone else is just repeating it over and over again without any kind of critical analysis. And so it makes, it makes what the consensus only works if all the people in the consensus are independently verifying it. If they're all rubber stamping it because it's all, it's in their interest or it makes their religion look good, then, then that organization's ability to actually provide scrutiny to something is pretty limited. Mm -hmm. And that's something that that, that it's, it was masked for us for the longest time because these systems were kind of independent of how the country actually worked or how I should say the West generally actually worked. Which, which systems uh, are you talking about? Like a critical Uh, theory departments and dairy or just just the university generally, just intellectual general. Yeah. Okay. Now, intellectuals, people don't know this, but like if you go back to um, if you go back to the the uh, the the like the 18th century or the 19th century, where where sort of the the scientific revolution starts happening, the, these universities are like they're basically theology departments that have people who study physics in their spare time, and their 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 contributions dovetail with like the contributions of random country priests who just have too much time on their hands and, you know, come up with a, a proof of the Pythagorean theorem. And these are, these are practically amateurs. Their bills are paid because they're proctors at what amounts to finishing schools for the religious class of their societies and their contribution into technical sciences, as we know them right now, are more or less just hobbies uh, they're 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 done for the edification of of uh, I don't know their edification of their ecos edification of God uh, maybe their own vainglory as mm-hmm. as Christians call it but um, 
but these, these are not paid professional bureaucracies designed to generate truth. And if they if they were, they would end up in the same position that all bureaucracies that are tasked with coming up with political truth, uh, it, would, they would, it would result in the exact same thing. So to go back to earlier, if you'll allow me to try to f- mm-hmm. formulate a thought, we were talking about the personal is political and um, how progressivism kind of uh, channels young people, but, and it's doing a phenomenal job of completely taking over the education system into being people who create a better world, whatever that means, protesting or uh, signing mm-hmm. petition or something like that. Uh, you also have this power structure that is a bureaucracy um, that gained a lot of influence in the world because of material success, however that material success came about, and through that success became corrupted by power. Uh, I don't see how you can solve power without killing human beings it's like uh if you wanted to solve the gender wage gap what you do is just castrate everybody and put everybody on like puberty blockers right that would be the yeah get, get rid of gender get rid of the gender just wage gap right get, get rid of power completely in order for the uh proving the pythagorean theorem to be as valuable as a political argument you'd have to neuter uh what makes life Sexy power is sexy. Power is a, a, a natural thing. I don't know if we can solve power by saying that it's in and of itself evil. Um, so if that if if you grant me that, then isn't it just inevitable that corruption is just gonna always happen? And how do you? How did you come to a place where you could, I guess, conquer the world or or, or confront corruption in your own life and and through your analysis of the world that's positive that's not just calling out corruption but trying to work towards perfection in a way well that's a lot of different uh so the first question is well no well the first question is will humans always gravitate towards power and the answer is yes but again if you look back to the 19th century when intellectuals didn't matter uh the 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 17-year-old girls of the 19th century would would kind of swoon in front of the soldiers or the, their local squires or their local lord the, the the sons of their local lords, but they wouldn't swoon in front of the 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 student reading Hegel, right? Any more than they'd swoon in front of the student reading uh, Newton or or Gauss, right? These it would be it would be interchangeable. It's just a person reading a book, and who cares what's in the book because the book isn't going to change the world, right? But that guy with a musket and a saber, you know, he might change the world, right? So you're right, you know, women. Uh, I say women, but women, women are just a they're they're a very they're useful for the thought experiment because they they very prominently display the thought process that all humans go through, and. Uh, but, but, you know, people are attracted to power and they'll always be drawn to power. So you're right. That corruption will never, will never cease. The second question I heard was how do you make people actually use power? Well, all right. So good question. Uh, so the, a lot of neo-reactionaries, uh, I'm thinking now, this isn't a neo-rationalist, I qualify this person as a, a, a rationalist, but Nassim Nicholas Taleb, I think, has the answer to this question. And he titled a book after it. Um, so what? let's just come up with like good pe- people who have power and consistently use it well. 
people like Garvin would say CEOs, and I would agree with them actually about that. I, I think the CEOs use power with very little corruption. I wouldn't, I would, uh, but, but um, I, I don't like corporations, but CEOs, their cor- corruption rate is astoundingly small considering how much oversight they have for managers, which is almost none. Uh, another class of people that generally is not very corrupt, again, relatively parents, parents, you know, you can be relatively sure that most parents are going to look after their children and, you know, okay. Other people who, um, who I mean, I, I that's I might have hit the end of my list after two. Not very poetic, but you you might you might see a pattern here. Uh, uh, people who really uh, who, who use power very effectively are um, nerds in fan communities. That they, they actually like the thing, right? They they tend to not abuse power very much if they're in it for the actual thing itself and not for some exogenous purpose like attracting people. I should say nerds to fandoms that are, aren't currently cool. <laughs> they use power effectively. The two components of wielding power, or the one component of all these things, is skin in the game. That's the title of Nassim Nicholas Taleb's book. And it means, do you have something, do you, how much is your own interest represented in, uh, in the thing that you're managing and how clearly can its progress be tracked? CEOs, uh, it's, it's very easy to tie their salary to the earnings of the company and the, cut, and, and the earnings of the company are very easy to measure. With parents, biologically speaking, they're deeply invested in the children they're taking care of. And, and the same thing is true for people whose entire identities are wrapped up in some kind of uh, uh, some kind of intellectual pursuit, or perhaps even a fictional world that that no one else cares about except for the beauty that it has. Hmm. They'll defend it because it's what gives their life meaning. In, in all of these things, you see that uh, there there are pre-existing reasons for people to care about these things, and, and a lot, and, and that gives them ownership. And the, the idea of successful government is not to create a bureaucracy or a system of voting that holds leaders accountable, but to make sure that the leaders who are in charge uh, have all of their natural human inclinations pointing in the direction of having deep investment in, in, in the people in question. Mm-hmm. You know, how much is their self-worth wrapped up in, in, in the health and well-being of the people? How much is is there? I mean, in in the case of kings, how much is their continued power dependent on that as well? And and and, and life, right? Um, and this is this is this is the question I think that we 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 need to start thinking in terms of again. Hmm. Obviously, in in terms of classic kings, the reason why it worked well is that if your population wasn't healthy, they couldn't fight invaders. Uh, we don't have that. To fall, well, we, I think we do ultimately have that to fall back on, but that that consequence isn't very apparent to our current crop of leaders, and 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 because of that, they don't really care if their population is healthy or not. And everyone knows sick populations are more subservient, right? So sick is the perf- uh, sick people are the perfect fuel for the bureaucracy. They're dependent. Uh, you can take power over them because they're sick, and they 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 justify their own emergencies. Hmm. So uh, then the last question was, um, I, can you remind me, how do you find something greater or something? I'm gonna, yeah, I, 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 
I'm really interested if you want to go here and I understand if sure. this is too far, but it's just Catholicism, because if you look at Catholicism as a historical entity or an institution, it's gone through mm-hmm. periods of corruption, of of just gaining power and being ruled by power and and mm-hmm. uh, times where it's been conquered by other powers. And somehow you you ended up finding that as a meaningful framework to work through. And I'm just wondering specifically however specific you want to get with that story but also how religion uh, or god or concept of god actually helps to attune people to the well-being of other people or if that is like the functional benefit of having religion in society is that it attunes people to serving other people and therefore it it creates power structures that more uh, are are more beneficial than than less um, I'll, I'll just to take the first question on, then maybe you could rephrase that second part because I'm not mm-hmm. so sure I understood it. But Catholic, my path to Catholicism was on a different track entirely from my path to reaction and and not basically anti-modern perspectives on politics. Although it's not completely unrelated, my path towards consult- Catholicism was caused by my disillusionment with atheism and the New Atheist movement and my disillusionment with progressivism and the world that progressivism had created, my desire for something different. And the various questions that that caused me to ask led me to Catholicism. And, uh, you know, I haven't looked back really at all. I'd say that that's been, I will say this though. I mean, when I started the YouTube channel, I was much more of sort of a first things Ben Shapiro look, you know, Catholicism is the truth. Modernity is a disease, Hmm. but we can kind of preserve liberalism by applying Catholic morality in this sort of John Paul II way. And John Paul II is truly a great man and truly uh, a hero of the 20th century, in my opinion. But what I um, learned through some choice corruptions that occurred after my conversion was that although all Catholics believe that the doctrine of the Catholic church is preserved in time. And I guess I would have known this if I, if I had remembered my Dante, but although the, the spiritual teachings of the church are preserved, the political the leadership of the church certainly is not. And the, the political leadership of the church blows in the direction typically of the powers that be. And we have, well, we, we, our, our faith tells us that this is not corrupt, the teachings, and I believe that sincerely. But for, for a person looking for uh, divine political teachings as a seed to a new world, there was a gap. You had the germination, the seed, the germ of something that I felt was the portal to a healthier world, and then the dream of it flowering. But between the germ and the flower, there is this moat called politics. And the church itself, while, while it, would, it, would, it would teach me how to plant the seed, it would do almost nothing to protect it. And, and in fact, the contemporary leadership of the church, politically speaking, seemed to do everything to subvert the germination of something new. Hmm. And in my frustration with the political force of the church, I was looking for reasons why organizations become politically constructed corrupted. And that's how I sort of asked the questions that made these uh, older authors 
And I, what's funny is I had read them before, but they had somehow bounced off of me. They didn't seem, they seemed alarmist. But then when I read them again in 2017, they answered all the questions that I had. And because of that, uh, you know, I am where I am trying to dovetail the two together, which I don't think is actually that challenging. I think that, you know, uh, the Catholic Church is considered Machiavelli to be a heresy, but political realism and Catholicism have, have, to me, there's never really been a conflict, I should say. Where do people see the conflict between the the analysis of power that Machiavelli uh, maps out and then the doctrines of the church? Well, because it's frankly immoral. And Michael Anton from the Claremont Institute will tell you this. Uh, Machiavelli describes real politics. And not only does he describe them, he basically flat out tells you that you should participate in the immorality of the politics itself. Uh, This being publicly practiced as uh, something that is normative would lead to a complete Hobbesian state of chaos. And so the, 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 the Machiavellian idea was to essentially blow up the concept of, of normative politics. Aristotle and ancient thinkers freely mix uh, normative and descriptive versions of politics and Machiavelli, it exists only as a description. And, Hmm. And you can you can hear this reiterated in James Burnham. He spends the first chapter or two of his famous book, The Machiavellians, tearing down the politics of uh, the previous Florentine genius, one of my personal favorite authors, Dante, who had a vision of uh, a universal order where politics would be completely governed by 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 goodness. Hmm. Um, the conflict comes because political realism, when adopted normatively, which I think there's a lot, of, there's a there's a good case that Dante believed this. That it, I mean, he's he's kind of saying that in his book, right? <laughs> in his famous book, The Prince, right? That you should do this. It, it is absolutely true that if you did, then uh, the whole universe dissolves itself into chaos, and that's um, obviously bad. And so the Catholic Church. Uh, and, you know, the Catholic Church considered this book to be kind of an anathema, uh, an evil book. And later on, people like Frederick the Great, sort of the big, big brained proponent of sort of like absolutism, which is sort of a, it's sort of like the, the, the divine right of kings, but put in sort of enlightenment language. He wrote a very famous book called The Anti-Machiavelli. Um, the, the problem is, is that I don't know there's something deep inside humans where they're, they're never going to be able to tol- be told this is how things work without immediately inferentially coming to the conclusion that this is how they should work. And so naturally our desire to preach morality leads us, I think, into deceptive illusions about how politics works. Hmm. And I don't know if there's a way around that. I fully am sympathetic with the Catholic church's, uh, you know, opinions on this book, both Frederick the Great's opinions on, on Machiavelli. Yeah. But nevertheless, that doesn't defeat what's actually real and what's actually going on, yeah. descriptively speaking. I wonder if, if there's an analogy with being a father and you know that your son can manipulate you and you watch your son manipulate you, but you don't want him to know that he's manipulating you. It's like, okay, you did that cute thing. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ease off. I'm going to give you what you want, right? But if you just gave your son the, your, the map to how to control you, then the entire political uh, structure of your family would uh, would collapse upon your child's will. The, the, if the yeah. child 
didn't have a, a larger uh, morality or, or a larger a sense of the larger structure of how this unit works and only thought about himself as he does. And he had he the does, tool. yeah. Children he, are completely he, selfish. They have yeah. a very poor theory of other people's minds. Yeah, yeah. But you wouldn't like, want to hand him. It would be anathema. It would it would completely undermine your authority as a father to teach your son how to corrupt you or how you yeah, exactly. as a powerful figure work. But I mean, this is you're 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 coming upon the 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 classic argument for monarchy. I just we, we the the again the political unit that sort of out of the box works the best is the family, right? So like you know you could you could argue that you've trained this expert class of child rearers in mm-hmm. in this super ninja setting, and they're they're better than parents. But if you do, I, I, but but when you think about it, the family is magical because you can just pluck any two average IQ nobodies, breed them together, and you get pretty good childcare from that arrangement, right? It's amazing. These aren't like PhD experts in childcare that have gone through this meticulously designed system. Uh, so the, the family is the structure, uh, the political structure that we know the best. And it is absolutely a political structure. And it is absolutely not a democracy. It is by its very nature, a monarchy. And the families that resemble monarchies the most tend to be the most stable. The families that resemble democracy tend to be the least stable. And this is, and and the reason, yeah. Don't forget oligarchy, like the great uh, polyamorous uh, dream, you know. Does that ever, does does that ever work, right? Like once you have these multiple centers of power in the polycule, Mm -hmm. that there's nothing more temporary than the polycule. Could you define polycule? Who stays in the polycule for life? What? Oh, polycule is a polyamorous. It's a polyamorous. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Maybe this is my blue stater coming out in me, but the, the, I don't know if this is still a word they like, but about, about four or five years ago, all the polyamorous people were talking about their polycule, uh, which is, it's just so cringe. I couldn't resist it. It was like, it's basically the, the best thing since so the, the atheists wanted to call themselves brights. But the but it but it embodies but it actually is useful for my purposes because okay. you can think of a, a marriage or a monogamous family and its its lifespan, and then you compare that to the lifespan of a polycule. I mean, I imagine most polycules last about four or five years, generously speaking, when it comes from like one of the many members leaving or causing a disruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't raise children through that. Uh, so, so, and, and furthermore, you just look at everything that makes something more democratic makes the family worse. It's absolutely important that the parents govern the family for the good of the children, but allowing the children to make political decisions is, you know, except for the very end of the process when they're about to leave the home, their participation in political decisions yeah. is is disastrous. Well, a, a responsible parent would. Uh train the child through uh, increasingly more uh, impactful decisions. Like you, you say, yeah. do you want, do you want uh, strawberries or cherries, right? To begin with. And then you, you work them up to being able to make decisions that have more and more impact on their life and uh, by extension your life too. You but when you, when you do this, what you want, you're introducing responsibility because you're training them to be independent. Hmm. But what you the, 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 the thing that the, the training process, and I'm tempted to go to another reactionary author, the training process involves ownership, skin in the game. Skin it's, the game. it's allowing them to see how their decisions have consequences. 
that are imposed by you or that are imposed by just the, the physical world. And as they gain more power, what you want to see is them taking more ownership over their decisions and becoming more independent. What you don't want to see is them trying to influence you uh, to give them what they want and then them getting upset when that results in a bad outcome. And then, then filtering the blame for the actions through the fact that you did them. That is the absolute worst because they can't see the consequence to, from, from their lobbying to the bad outcome, right? Because, it, it, you know, if you, if, um, you know, this whole thing, right? Everyone, every parent has had this happen to them once where the kid says he wants the treat because it looks like it's yummy. And you know that this is made out of coconut and marzipan. He's instantly going to hate it. And so he, he cries and you give in and you give it to him. And then why did you feed this to me? Right. It's yucky. Uh, but there's little instances of that. The kid doesn't understand that he made the decision by the time the decision resolves in a way he doesn't like it's you made the decision. And the, the same thing is true in terms of governments, the, the way a population becomes strong and responsible is that they see a feedback, they, they, they're exposed to tight feedback loops. They do something bad, they get a consequence. They do something good, they get a reward. And moreover, they're the owners of their own well-being, right? They're the authors of their own destiny and they're the managers of their own destiny. By the time it gets to the place where we are now, like yeah. the, the, like take for instance, like college loans, right? That's what's been in the news recently this week. So the decision to go to college is bad at this stage for most people. But, but now what's happening is that, that what would ordinarily be like, okay, I want to buy this thing called an education. Wasn't well, going to actually increase my employment or not. Uh, well, you know, that decision is taken out of the hands of, of the individual person. And then it's just, it's paid for by printing money which in turn isn't even being paid for by taxes. Like that feedback loop is, is too tight. It's being paid by future people's taxes and future people's prices on, on, on goods and services. So, so what you have is like the, the eventual consequences of, of college not actually generating value are so far removed from the person who actually makes the decision whether to go to college or not. Uh, there, like, does the person like if we print money and buy everyone free college, even though it doesn't generate any value in the market, what that's going to cause is, well, people will print more dollars, yeah. and then eventually we're going to have hyperinflation. But no one who experiences hyperinflation is going to think like, oh wow, I guess we shouldn't have all gone to college. The decision is so departed from the eventual outcome that there's no ability to actually learn or to grow in, in, in understanding of, of the consequences of the actions. And so because of that, and there, there's a thousand, thousand ways where, where our current iteration of democratic mixed economies do this to people. We are sort of slowly untraining ourselves or training, uh, we're untraining ourselves from responsibility or we're training ourselves to be irresponsible. Because no decisions actually have consequences and therefore no one needs to take ownership in a radical way. Hmm. Yeah, the uh, the ultimate um, ground of responsibility, I guess, is, is the self before God or the self before your father and your mother and your siblings, right? But eventually you get out of the house. For me, maybe maybe some people don't have this and I really don't understand the atheist mindset. So eventually I'm just not going to 
be able to make sense to them or of them. But ultimately I stand before that, which gave me life, which I just call God because it's really, really huge. And, uh, yeah, trusting in all of God. this, uh, trusting in all the culture, trusting in all of these uh, mechanisms that give me wealth and give me pleasure and stuff. I already kind of distrusted them. And maybe that was uh, either my personality or or something my my father uh, taught me to not really trust the world, not really trust the world. But um, I, I don't see a whole people at this stage correcting itself without collapse. I don't see a whole bunch of people like finding that ground of reality and starting to make better decisions when the entire machine runs on making people make bad decisions or, or yeah. covering pe- for people's bad decisions. So it's just kind of scary. It's a little scary yeah. if you look at it, like, like looking at you and, and what RN's doing and, you know, you, you look at these systems, you're like, yeah, it, it's, it's messed up and it's not going to get any better. Maybe there's some grace there too, but. I mean, the hope is, is that as our, as our society kind of degenerates, it creates opportunities for people to be more independent and to create little enclaves of power that are separate from the broader institution. And that we kind of, we kind of fall apart before we fall to pieces, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that would help a lot. That would definitely lighten the blow of, of the eventual collapse. What we don't want is the entire thing to be consolidated so that everyone are sick, indolent, atomized people who can't take care of themselves. And then the system collapses, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, like every, everyone, everyone gets their food fed to them through, through a pipe ad and are encased in a virtual reality machine yeah. and don't know how to live outside of it. And then the grid fails for three yeah. months. Right? You'll know nothing and you won't be happy. <laughs> yeah. You'll be completely dependent on the system and you'll be dead. And this is, um, and this is why the, the the Klaus Schwab and the Klaus Schwab vision of the world is, as we now know, I think pretty definitively, it's 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 democratically laundered tyranny, and the I don't know if the ancients would have described tyranny this way, but it's basically, it's basically a monarchical government. I, I guess you could have tyranny of the majority, so it's not not necessarily monar- monarchical. But it's government that's governed not for the good of the people, and that's that's what any any ancient thinker. And again, they probably wouldn't have used those exact words, but it would be some what distinguishes monarchy from tyranny. And they'd say, well, the the monarch governs for for the good of the body politic, and the tyrant governs for himself selfishly. He degrades the body politic. He sells his people into slavery. He, he creates bad conditions so he can personally enrich himself in his vanity. And that's, um, and that, that's what distinguishes the two of them. They're, they cannot be divorced from outcomes. Hmm. And again, that's probably why I, I depart with, with Curtis Yarvin on this idea of the purple Caesar. Uh, I agree with him that Caesar will have to be nominally purple or blue, but it, any, any person who fixes the system and I, I know you're, you're sympathetic to the left, but the, the problem is, is that the left kind of has to die. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that it doesn't have good ideas, but nothing can be allowed to have the left. Wait, wait, okay. I just, just, just to clarify, you don't want to kill them. You, no, I don't want to kill actual okay. leftists. The, the religion has to die. Right. Okay. Um, the, 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 the religion as it ha- evolved in the 20th century has to die because uh, because it, it 
it's really what, what it really is, is this process of getting powerful by pushing the cart down the hill further towards collapse. And if you can, if you can push that button, everyone's going to push that button. So in any future world, that button has to be not pushable. Regardless of whether the government manages our healthcare or whether we organize in corporations or in guilds or in co-ops or or, or whatever, uh, the, the, that that sort of ants the, the thing that gives all left wing ideas the left wing ant smell, which is essentially de- de- degenerating society to feed power into an oligarchic apparatus that you can participate in that thing has to not exist anymore as a political option hmm. uh, for, furthermore the the left wing's recent innovations uh in in the direction of things like gender multiculturalism and family structure those are just plain bad ideas that manifestly don't work and need to be done away with and because it is because i mean this data's plan don't work i mean how can i i'll be blunt right uh, the the left wing the left wingers have been i mean it's been 60 years since the civil it's been at least 60 years yeah. maybe more like 70 because yeah, the sexual revolution people don't remember the sexual revolution started in the 50s not the 60s oh. so, but the thing is exactly. in the 50s it was all men right it was mad men right Mm -hmm. Uh, it's been 70 years since the sexual revolution we've gone from madmen to the free love hippies to the feminists of the 70s to the feminists of the 80s to the third wave feminists of the 90s to to the social justice intersectional feminists of the 2000s and of all of those generations of thinkers with all of their phds they haven't come up with a single plan that allows men and women to birth a generation of children that replace themselves or, or even at this point, and even to have sex, like no one in this, these left-wing circles is having sex anymore because men and women don't, don't meet up anymore and don't actually uh, come together and form lasting relationships. And, and it's, it, no one can describe to me the regulations you do to actually get a functional uh, sexual marketplace under a uh, uh, po- that's, that's progressive or, post-sexual revolution hmm. the the only the only solution i've ever heard from leftists is well we'll have sexual revolution and then like they won't take it too far or then when they turn 35 they'll forget about all that stuff and go back to being how people were in the 50s magically and that worked for the boomers because they had parents nagging them to do that so hmm. eventually they just relented to the but millennials were the first generation to ever experience the sexual revolution, not as a revolution, but as the actual reigning force of society. And the consequence is that millennials are the the generation that has had the least success with relationships and family formation, period. They just have not formed families. And millennials are pushing to their 30s and 40s right now. They're, they're not a young generation anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we have, us 90 kids, we aren't spring chickens anymore. Yeah. You, you still have mental acuity and you can still get up in the morning. Uh, yeah, as as, of course. You know, I need to drink a lot more animals. water and stretch. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, I, there's so many different ways that I, I, I want to go, but uh, I think it, it's late for you. Sure. It's getting late for me, but um, no, no, it's, it's fine. I'm, I'm verbose. So you can take as long as you want. It, it's just what you describe as the left. It, it has the marketing. It has, marketing geniuses so we think of it as good and then it feels good and and uh you know contrapoints is a great example just a brilliant mind mm-hmm. great sets great production values uh great uh, i i can't 
I don't jive with their arguments, but I can't really like figure out what they're saying. So I don't know how well, good they're. Well, I, I do. Contrapoint is the greatest critic of liberalism, of, of progressivism that we have on YouTube today. One of, if you read into that creators, like yeah. the subtext of all of their videos is that progressivism is a dead end. Yeah, and there's like a, there's like a caption at the end that tells you that this is all just a show. But like, if you actually read the videos, that's what they're kind of saying, right? What, what's the, uh, you did a series, it, it, I, I have to plug at least one of your series, you've done several, but the, the series with Jordan Peterson and ContraPoints, what, what was the arc on? Oh, oh yeah, that's was, that's uh, the one right before. End of an era? My, when, yeah, end of an era or something. That was yeah. one of my last big video series because, um, you know, my family was happening and yeah. I yeah. was losing my time, but I wanted that to be kind of like a, a possible endpoint for the channel. And yeah, I mean, this is like, what, what did we learn from YouTube? In, in, at, at the point of 2019, which is in a lot of ways where it, 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 the old video essay format died. Yeah, yeah. And w- what we learned in YouTube, I think, was that there's kind of... I don't know. I mean, the, 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 what we learned in YouTube is that there's, there's this sort of these ideological off-ramps. There's the progressive ideological off-ramp that looks like ContraPoints. And then there's the conservative off-ramp that looks like Jordan Peterson. Hmm. And... The, the the problem is, is that everyone kind of knows ContraPoints will win, but even ContraPoints knows that what they're advocating for isn't coherent and isn't stable. And so the people who take that off ramp are going to, are kind of getting sold a false bill of goods a little bit. They're, 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 they're buying something that they think is permanent. And it's not going to be permanent. Uh, this is not going to, this ideology is not going to serve them for the rest of their lives very well. Okay. That might be one way to define the positive side of what you're teaching. And I want to get away somehow from the reactionary mm-hmm. um, uh, label. It, it, it just seems it's like a bad label. It's just like something that your enemies <laughs> called you, right? And well, it literally is, but yeah, the, the, it's literally what the revolutionaries call the people who oppose them. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but there, there's a, a quality that you don't necessarily need to go into a belief system about God, but tradition works too. But there, like, there's a quality of permanence. There's a quality mm. of perpetual health. There's a, a quality of in tune with nature in a way, or maybe reality is the better term because nature's become yeah. a fetish of, of the left. But um, I, I'm just, I'm trying to map out like, like the fundamental like concepts that make your worldview coherent because it seems more coherent to me than to the anti-woke or to liberalism as I've, I've gone through it and, and seen it working. So I'm just trying to find the, the basic like quadrants of it. Well, you're you're describing sort of like why uh, what what unifies sort of the distant right ideologies, and you know one one of them is one idea. The negative one is the what the the academic agent slogan, which is actually a Jonathan Bowden slogan, "Clear them out," which is like we just want to retire the apparatus of the oligarchy and retire its religion. Uh, you know, we have nothing against the people. I'm a blue stater, right? Yeah. But this this ideology isn't working anymore, guys. And um, then the the that that's the negative vision. The positive vision is, of course, much harder to define. But pe- people have tried, and the current crop of people like Yarvin and Bronze Age pervert are talking about this idea of vitalism. And I think that's sort of what like you're you're referring to. 
and I kind of consider this to be kind of a phony, um, you know, a phony like pseudo idea, like imaginary numbers, mathematics. I'm like, it, it stands in for something, but it's not actually real. There are no vitalists, but you could call all right-wing ideas vitalist in the sense that what, what, what almost all people on the distant right are very concerned about is, are these ideas going to facilitate strong, independent collectives of humans going on into the future yeah. that, that preserve their culture and their way of life and uh, that, that are, that are healthy and well-formed humans that are, that are engaged in the real world and not some virtual exchange of dopamine and, and, and hedonism mm. and stuff like mm. that, or, or live inside a pod being fed, you know, slop so that the, the utilization functions on, on Klaus Schwab's spreadsheet can, can go up. That's, that's what sort of differentiates the broad sweep of, of right-wing ideas. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that, you know, th- this is, what this is an attempt to do is it's, it's an attempt to come up with what some people have called, Alex Kashuda notably, I, I, she probably is quoting this from somebody else, but the minimum viable religion, like the, like the, most, mm-hmm. yeah. the most boiled down version yeah. of a religion that can still allow humans to thrive and not sort of fall into the abyss that is their own ide- we want ideological w- wiggle room we've grown used to ideological wiggle room we, we've grown used as a culture in the west of playing around with ideas of having fun with memes and and disagreement right like yeah like, but that, the problem is that like that the the and you're absolutely right and that's what the people are kind of dreaming of this concept of like okay like how tight do we need to make this but still like have it be loose yeah, but um, the problem is, is that that's um, although it exists, uh, although vitalism and, and this broad category of vitalistic uh, minimum religions exists as a theoretical concept, it doesn't really exist in the real world. Real religions are held up in reality by real constraints and real believers that believe in real gods or the real god very specific very specifically very particularly and very unironically and once you bend those things it's hard to see how the thing still maintains it's you know i mean it's like you're trying to have something both be rigid and collapsible at the same time i guess it could collapse like a tent uh, under certain circumstances but the two desires are kind of at odds with each other and pushing against each other uh, not that you couldn't imagine something where the the vitalistic post modernity religions or post modernity societies had some kind of like cordoned off area where looseness was accepted. Mm-hmm. The the very un um, the very un uh, flexible Amish very famously have Roomspringer, right? Which I'm sure you've heard about, right? The the period of young people's lives where they're invited to experiment with things and given the option to leave the Amish. Uh, and then the option to return. Uh, but that's, um, aside from these sort of, uh, you know, domesticated examples of openness, the the question is, how do you recreate some kind of open marketplace of ideas and not have it collapse back into the Landian cycle of degeneration of demosclerosis, as uh, mm-hmm. Yarvin calls it, right? Mm-hmm. 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 I don't know. It seems like there's a gentleman's agreement. I mean, we again, it's like power. You can't rid the world of ironic people. 
what would you lose in your life if you lost irony? I mean, aren't you losing like a whole bandwidth of uh, intellectual and emotional color to draw? I guess you are, but I mean, I mean, I don't know, but like, this is actually a good point. Like I use a lot of irony because I'm a blue stater. I get the sense by how you're talking about you're a blue and the fact you went to Evergreen that you're a blue stater as well. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, we're, we're both blue staters from the Pacific uh, coast ish. And, um, you know, uh, so irony is our bread and butter, but, uh, you know, so if, if irony were a color, if irony were red, we color with a lot of red. But if you compare the, the our lives in terms of the various emotions of anger and commitment and love and sadness and all of the human emotions, like if you if these were all independent colors, like mm. you know, sadness was blue and you know, happiness was green, and and uh, you know, and you compare the pictures of our lives to all other people's lives who have ever existed, like our co- pictures are just dominated by red. We're the most ironic people. We are the most ironic homo sapiens that have ever lived in the history of our species. And we're almost incapable of experiencing anything that isn't tainted by irony. Hmm. There, there, you know, my friend academic agent had this hike that he famously videotaped where he was trying to touch grass again, and he couldn't help but sort of put a meta commentary on it that was uh, that was comparing it to Skyrim. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so so like this 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 sort of meta humor or yeah. ironic perspective, it's hard to know like what's too much. But if you consider ordinary like operating capacity of of humanity, like the ironic instinct, we're just maxing that out like mm. beyond what anyone, beyond what our species has ever evolved to feel. Yeah. But just like pornography and modern dating exposes you to way more sex than our species was ever like how many, how many sexual partners was a woman supposed to have, or even a man before the 20th century? Like what show me a woman who's had more than 10 sexual partners and, you know, before 1900, and you're talking about two classes of women, you're talking about, uh, uh, well, prostitutes, Right. Or, or you're talking to women who are in such a violent and chaotic circumstances that her husbands are just dropping like flies, like this ISIS brides who have like 10 husbands because their husbands keep on blowing themselves up in suicide bombs, right? And they keep on remarrying them to other, to other people. Uh, that's, and that's, that's the reality of our, our, ent- our entire species existence. So in terms of sex, we're getting sex in ways that our species was never designed to have sex. And we're, we're wielding irony in ways that are, you know, just not ways that our species was ever designed to use irony. Aren't we more starved for sincerity at this stage? I mean, that's what David Foster Wallace wanted us or thought that we'd, we'd be in. And then we got the woke. I mean, the woke is the answer to Gen X. You keep on saying millennial, but I keep on thinking you, you're saying Gen X. So maybe there's like a maybe there's a, a nomenclature difference than we have. But like, I think it's the, the same basic group of people we're, we're talking about. But the 90s kids or whatever. We grew up on yeah. irony. We, we longed for something great. We longed for the sacred, but everything was stained by irony. And then finally, the generation after us come around with a complete lack of irony or completely sincere, but they lack uh, a coherent system to implement their sincerity in the world. And so you have the woke, which is just they are being very sincere about racism, about injustice, about fixing the world. They're very, very sincere. They could use a little bit of irony, 
but they think that that's white supremacy or they they use ways to uh, get get out of uh taking it on taking their lives unseriously right? i mean no no one's ironic about a religion they believe if you are then it defeats the entire purpose of the irony i mean if you can you ironically take communion at a catholic church if you, that's almost not, that that pretty much is sacrilege right uh-huh. Yeah. And no. like, can you ironically profess a, a vow of marriage? Can you like, well, I'm going to say my wedding vows ironically. Oh. The person who says his wedding vows ironically <laughs> is probably going to get divorced. Right. Fair enough, fair enough. You know, you have all these people with like, they, they do these studies, like people who have joke weddings where it's all a big game, like their yeah, divorce yeah. rates way higher than people who have solemn weddings. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you know, it's okay. because that there's a certain elements that irony can't be allowed in. And okay. I'm sure it makes your like it makes your fanatic problem less, and I understand that the SJWs are, you know, irritating because they're Puritans and they're, yeah. they're religious fanatics. But the the reason why the SJWs are there, there's an expression among reactionaries: the woke are more correct than the mainstream. Um, and this is one of the areas where I definitely applies the the SJWs were absolutely right to want to just dive in sincerely uh into into a religion that that they could just live their lives in and organize their lives through mm-hmm. the problem is what they got was this bizarre admixture that that's part communism and part warmed over classical liberalism and part christianity and part just a bunch of political preferences that fuel money to America's incompetent bureaucratic <laughs> ruling class. And, you know, what, what you have is a religion that's organized around the intersection of all of those four things. And it's just the most unhealthy thing imaginable. Hmm. It's a bunch of people, you know, it's a bunch of people demanding solutions, but not being able to provide them. It's a bunch of people thinking that, that, the health of their families is secondary to uh, the the right signaling on on the latest outrage on social media. It's designed to get clicks, and it's yeah. designed to. I mean, you know, this is the other thing. Indulgence. McIntyre brought this. Yeah, it's also designed to to get into school systems, right? the The fact that it doesn't have a god at its head or people don't go to church make it deniable that it actually is a religious belief and therefore teachers can actually teach elements of it yeah. and the law can actually mandate that elements of this religious creed be taught but beyond beyond its adaptability in those dimensions it just destroys humans it it leaves them more de- like all of these wokies i mean these people are pretty young and if you look at the incidence of depression and just like serious health issues or if you look at how many of them have stable marriages or, or like very few, the, the people who are really into this stuff as believers, yeah. I mean, the Puritans of, of the, the 16th and 18th century, or, which is the 17th and 18th centuries, um, these people actually had families and like made Harvard University. And sure, they burned a few universities, Sure, they took over England and banned Shakespeare and and Christmas and broke all the stained glass windows and burned all the English folk songs, uh, but but they also built the British Empire and created the most industrious uh, nation on earth in, in the subsequent centuries. You can imagine there is going to be no legacy to that of our current Puritans because the core principles they espouse are just so far away from anything that is remotely healthy. 
in terms of human human engagement yeah, and human human interaction with the actual world. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I I wanted to say that they do have gods. You just have to understand that those gods are influencers, like George Floyd. Their attention eventually yeah. uh, uh, congregates around an idol and circulates. Like, people were getting baptized there and stuff. Like, and people were like, there there were like literally flagellants there who were like whipping themselves and people getting baptized and erecting giant like easter island statues of jordan george Floyd already looked like an easter island statue so it wasn't that hard but like all these really bizarre religious phenomenon going was, around george Floyd. that was that was a rare insult from like 2016 youtube there that was a, that was a good one he slipped in there they yeah. Wow. Was George Floyd known in 2016? <laughs> no, like, um, I'm just saying like Easter Island looking George Floyd, but yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that was like a joke from 2020, certainly. Okay. But, I mean, yeah, this is, I don't exactly, I think that is where we are right now is that you might notice like everyone's really burnt out on politics. It's just um, like this. It, it's, I, I think like people just, people just don't know what to do. Like the left doesn't know what to do. Let, the left is just does, does not have any more ideas. There's, I hope something happens. You know, well, I was when the Roe v. Wade fell, uh, they were gonna, they were promising riots in the streets. I'm like, one, this is about women's reproductive health. You're not gonna get a bunch of young white men like destroying yeah. cities for this. But um, two, they just didn't seem to have the energy to follow through. Yeah, yeah, and they were getting signals from the bureau, bureau, bureaucrats yeah, that, that too. Yeah. you know, the Democrat, you know, this is not the election where we want to have riots again. Yeah, right. So, yeah. like, so they they weren't getting the proper. I mean, there were, you know, in Seattle, there were literally members of the city council that were encouraging rioters. Yeah, yeah, like uh, on the streets, like uh, Salon, so very yeah. famously, right. <laughs> Like and so like this is th- th- these people like they get egged on by the the bureaucrats. Uh, it's way less spontaneous than something like January six. Like this stuff is has a lot of allies and a lot of people signaling that there's not going to be consequences for doing this. And that you know that encouragement just wasn't there this year. But what what you see like you know when you look at people on the left that were content creators that were really enthusiastic. Everyone was talking about overthrowing capitalism in 2019. In 2021, like they've all shut up. The only thing they're talking, they're talking about how like we need to start another war for democracy against Vladimir Putin. Well, are you serious? Or, oh yeah, they all went on the Putin. No, I'm, I'm, uh, like uh, one person in particular that uh, I probably mentioned this person too much, but Bosch, right? Bosch is <laughs> like Bosch in 2019 is the Biden election is the first step to the overthrow of capitalism. Like he, he hasn't talked about overthrowing capitalism for for years now, and now all he's like now all he's doing is talking about the latest fascination of the State Department. This debate, the space between what what Vosh has talked about uh, enthusiastically in the last year and what the State Department cares about is nothing. He yeah. he has the opinions of the State Department that yeah. that is what his channel is, and it has like this radical veneer that you can scratch off. Yeah. Maybe Hassan Piker talks about revolution more than that, but I, I don't think any of these people are talking about uh, tearing down the system of government we have and replacing it with mm-hmm. you know the workers' utopia. They're all wearing uh, fifty thousand dollars dresses with "Eat Eat the Rich" on them, right? Or "Text the Rich." Yeah, on them. Uh, it's just interesting that they have such a big follower base. That's the thing that disturbs me or perturbs me, or I can't figure out how people don't see through. Um, are you still there? I, I lost. I lost a second there. What did you uh, say? I was. I was just saying. Uh, 
they seem shallow or or uh it doesn't seem like they add up as as characters as content creators but they have huge followings yeah or, or the the when you engage in you know federal politics on twitter it's like why are there millions of people who are buying this crap i mean maybe i'm buying things that they would say why are you not buying it's just it's a weird kind of numbers game where what is relevant or you're seeing democracy in action which is kind of idiocracy in action ultimately yeah maybe maybe i don't know well you're seeing democracy in action because left left, leftism will always sell really well and this is but big problem the thing is and and eternal disappointment right well you know i think what this is this i'm I always feel like I need to cite my sources when I, when I say these things. I think Angela Nagel said this, but this is what everyone's kind of believing is that the real hopeful element is that the, the, the left is generating an increasingly large number of increasingly shallow belief. The people who watch these people, they're, they're not real true believers in this stuff. They're, they're people who are consuming them as an entertainment product. And furthermore, the, the, the sort of human quality of your average leftist is kind of decreasing. Hmm. Whereas the human quality of your average radical right winger is, I mean, really, really increasing. I mean, okay, I was through this, like, what is like how many, how many really smart people were were radical, radical right wingers in 1995? Like, like, you know, they're just yeah. not very many, like almost none, right? Yeah, yeah. And the, I, the, I mean, it may, maybe, maybe in the, like you could find a few of them in, in like the Mises Institute. Right. Yeah. And then you might find a few of them working for Pat Buchanan's magazine. And then, you know, I don't know if you would consider people like first, uh, like uh, R.R. Reno or, um, or, or Robert George or, or these people like John Paul, the second, the John Paul, the second crowd, maybe they are radically right wing, but they didn't call themselves that they were just standard Republicans. And and the quality of the people that are were drawn to write like radically right wing ideas or radically dissident ideas is is really going up in in terms of quality in terms of of number of quality people that that are there and so this is what eventually is going to implode the left is that it's just hmm. it's just going to become this magnet for people who are who are really really um, not very attractive and not. I don't mean physically attractive. I mean, actually, a lot of them are very physically attractive, right? I mean, who aren't living lives that you'd want to emulate. Okay, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, there's this, um, it, it's funny because I did this video on ContraPoints at the beginning of my career. And every now and again, a ContraPoints fan finds this. And they, they, they they're, they're attacked usually is they, they always leave the same content. The content is, you had this conversation with Natalie Wynn back in 2017 and she has millions of subscribers and you only have like 30,000 and you're jealous now. And I just have to laugh to myself. I'm, I'm thinking, I always leave the same comment and reply. I said, I wouldn't exchange lives with Natalie Wynn for all the subscribers in the entire world. I actually think Natalie Wynn makes excellent videos and there are excellent critiques of the left. I could even call myself a fan. But insofar as the life that they have demonstrated through their own confessions on their social media feeds and what comes through in their videos, it seems like they're living a very, very difficult life, despite the fact that they're filthy rich. 
And, you know, all things considered with my minuscule YouTube channel, I'm actually fairly happy with the life I did. And if YouTube destroyed my YouTube channel and banned me off the entire internet for the rest of my life, I'd be disappointed with the amount of time I put into it. And the fact that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't make videos because I like making videos, but I'm pretty happy with my life. Otherwise, like life goes on, right? I don't know. That's it. It just, it's just, it's just, um, there, there's no path towards a, a, a leftist thriving life outside of being a leftist influencer, it seems. And, and the only thing other than that is just to be a consumer. And, and I think that's eventually what's going to, uh, that's eventually what's going to implode the entire endeavor and, and, and kind of, and kind of show it to be hollow. And I don't think this is, you know, one thing that's not going to happen is there's not going to be a popular right wing movement that's going to seize the country. Uh, well, what's going to happen? Six. In, well, we were like, yeah, they, they were like inches away. I mean, it was like a, a hair's breadth from like seizing the entire government. Uh, what, what's going to happen is I, th- I think right wing ideas are going to win, but they're th- when they win, they will not be perceived as right wing ideas. They will be perceived as just mm. common sense folk wisdom. There we go. And and the people who put forward those ideas will, pro- will probably call themselves something like progressives or, uh, you know, um, people reformists or something like that. Right. Yeah. So it, it will be, it will not have the conservative or even the right wing ant smell on it. And in the same way that nothing can be allowed to have the left wing ant smell on it. Uh, no one will be able to take power having the right wing ant smell on yeah, them. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. What, what's going to happen is sort of dark crystal, like the, the, the the uh, the reconcilable elements of the left are going to kind of merge back in to the vitalist components of the right and then what will happen is that some 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 new ideology is going to come about and it's going to have the form of the left and the essence of the right because the form of the right is sort of irredeemable when it comes to taking the reins of power historically and the the essence of the left is irredeemable uh, in in what it's eventually revealed about what it actually is. I think. Okay, thank you. That was that was the the quote I was doing this entire interview to get to. Form of- <laughs> I, I thought that was a really tortured analogy. Once you're making analogies <laughs> that rely on your knowledge of obscure Jen, Jim Henson films from the seventies, <laughs> I think you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. And, Jim you know, Henson were- was my. Uh, you remember when he died? It was more traumatic. Uh, was than that in the nineties? Is that the nineties? I don't remember. I don't remember. I wasn't really aware of him as an okay, actual. Person. You are. You are a millennial. I'm a Gen Xer. Okay. We okay. Yeah. That might be. We're. I'm on the cusp, and it looks like you are too of the two generations. But, yeah. 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 We're yeah. in that gray zone. That. Yeah. Me. If you if you actually had been to a grunge concert and don't don't just know them as a kid from their CDs, then you know, <laughs> that, then you're probably a Gen Xer. But um, you know that. Both sides need to lose a lot, hmm. but uh, I think the left needs to lose. The left has a more foundational change they need to make, okay. and uh, and I also think that it's yeah. it's better as for individuals to kind of the the ideas that are circulating around the right wing in terms of both the description of human reality. And the prescriptions on on what is valuable in life are just more correct than the left wing ones. Uh, the the left wing has mastered the ability uh, to project itself in terms of voice, uh, to, to institutionally manipulate outcomes, 
but they have lost the ability to grasp on to what's truly valuable in life. Uh, what, what was formerly, they, they didn't always, they, you know, you go back a hundred years, you go back to the sixties even, and you'll have leftists that are just these absolute poets. Like Walt Whitman, for instance, he was a, like, he was a shitlip of the 19th century, right? <laughs> he was like an SJW before his time. And like, oh my God, what a brave, like, I think he actually used like this, the, like the, the brave unbound gods within our own souls. But like, you know, he, he spoke those words as if like these, these, these sort of um, Promethean godlike entities are erupting from our romantic souls. And, and by God, the force of his language made you believe it. I don't think anyone could do that in the modern left uh, to, to kind of channel these things. But maybe no one in the modern right could do that. Although Bronze Age pervert, I, I really do think he's, you really he's a like gem. him. You I do really like him. Yeah, really he hates. I, I know. I know that he's absolute heretic, but I can't help but kind of you know I can't help but root for the bad guy this time, right? Um, you know, but 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 um, you know. I don't think that the right wing at this point, at least has any kind of bold poets, uh, but, but we have a lot of small, quiet. Well, we know that the left has zero art. They have zero art at this point and they're killing all of their good artists by yeah. sending them through uh, sensitivity readers and stuff like that. So they're, they're yeah. yeah. And, and, and but, but also it's the problem with the left is that it, it also um, the infinite feed has kind of created the situation where there's this, spirit of artistic paranoia that is just this death spiral for for what they are right artistic paranoia what do you mean by that? well you know you you create something and you have to worry about everyone jumping on you for it not being woke enough the classic example is that uh there was a tumblr steven universe's tumblr community where everyone dogpiled the creator for creating uh traditionally beautiful versions of characters that were portrayed as sort of more um, oblong in the original show. Uh, everything is filtered through politics. And so nothing can be really authentic. Mm. And, and well, to the extent that you yeah. uh, don't follow the conventions, you're functionally a right winger. Okay. You know, Marxists have a, it's strange, but Marxists like classical Marxists who just like, who just for some bizarre reason think that, labor theory of value is true and surplus value is like a real thing they have a place on the right wing uh, like they're welcome in our circles as because the conventions of the right wing are are much more different and conducive to actually exploring things that are outside politics yeah well i mean again to go back to irony briefly uh, when everything's filtered through irony or everything is filtered through politics what's lost is the um do you use the word authentic? I know sacred I is still a stained word, but there's a, a there's a quality in the word sacred that's more than just me being me. It's me. Mm. It's it's me resonating, having a having a discourse on a very deep level with who I am and and what is. Um, which I think is closer to what people mean by authenticity, but that is stained in a, by the internet. Um, but again, politics and irony, once everything's filtered through them, there's no space for the human, uh, the human being. Yeah. 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 Cause they consume everything, right. They consume yeah. everything around you. And there's, yeah. there's no picture for the truly human. The, the, I'm not saying like the right has no problems. Obviously the right's big problem is that it, 
it can't come together ever, right? Because everyone has like the real beliefs that they unironically believe in have to be in, in when, when they come together as right wingers have to be suppressed. Otherwise it will turn into a circular firing squad. Hmm. But everyone knows that it, you have to kind of be cool enough not to have that, let that happen. Other, otherwise your, your coalition breaks apart. And uh, mm-hmm. my, the, the right wing dream obviously is the whole concept of patchwork that many different diverse strange of, strains of humanity will be allowed to exist in, in a way where or sort of uh, choice will dominate over voice, so to speak. And so what you will usually have inside right-wing communities is like, okay, you know, this person does not share your religious worldview, but you're fine with there being boundaries between you and them. So like, yeah. here's where they keep their sacred and ironic stuff and their yeah. puritanism. And here's where you keep yours. And then there's this place where you come to speak as intellectuals and, mm. you know, you, you follow warrior ethics and, and you don't start uh, yeah. spurking out on each other for, <laughs> for violate. And I have my attempt, like I have groups and like, for instance, everyone knows that I'm kind of, um, I kind of have it in for, for the, like the pickup artists and the pagans, like those are the ones that really uh, get on my nerves a lot. And, um, <laughs> but, but often if I want to say like, I have intellectual problems with them, not moral ones. I always have to qualify that. Like, I just think that it's incoherent. With pagans and, uh, well, I do. Right. <laughs> but like, that's not, you know, I, my, 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 my issue is I think that they're not, they, they don't have a, that that's, that is ultimately not coherent and, hmm. and, and vitalistic, but, um, Hmm. You know, like I have intellectual problems with uh, like Muslims and Jews too, right? Because I'm Christian. Like hmm. they can't, all those religions can't both be true, hmm. but I don't have like intellectual problems with those religions. They're definitely coherent, right? They definitely hmm. could be true. And they've definitely demonstrated through history that they can encourage human thriving. And because of that, I have to respect them as, as this fixture of humanity, which while it might be wrong, contains the kind of raw vitalism that that really animates all of the right uh you know maybe there'll be some kind of weird form of marxism that exhibits similar elements that will literally formalize itself into an actual religious faith but i don't know we're a long way away from that yeah yeah i think what you've just described is is liberalism with like strong actors in it it's it's like a liberalism of heroes right it's a it's a number of different people with very essential personal beliefs that can come together to to not kill each other and and to benefit from each other's input yeah um yeah but it it, i think what we're feeling out now on the right wing is how to make this work without sort of falling into the traps of um I mean, one of the reasons why it works is that there's like no power up for grabs. Right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So like to go back to that point, right? But I mean, the, the hope is, is that even when there is potential for power being up for grabs, uh, some political organizing structure can be put in place to prevent everyone from grabbing it. And because once people start grabbing for power, then this idea that there can be sort of cordoned off intellectual spaces for free discourse uh, that will go away, and once you mix discourse with power, like I said before, that, that's well, it. yeah. I mean, but but what what the right wing? Uh, I think Curtis was talking about um, the selection pressure of uh, anti free speech or or uh, cancellation, cancel culture. And he said that's actually going to lead to better 
right-wing thinkers. It's going to lead to better ideas over, oh, over yeah. time. Yeah. But if if that's what's being selected, it's going to be a bunch of sharks and uh, you know sea lions. You're, you're going to have these really strong, different clades or different uh, beasts, right? You, what 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 the selection pressure from the left to the right is doing is creating a lot of strong intellectuals. But once once powers effort grabs, it's going to be the battle of of the five armies, unless there's a coherent thing that you're building, right? It's going to be yeah, a bunch I of mean, different races or, or the race one is scary, right? Because well, the race um, I mean race race. I was thinking well, uh, J.R. Tolkien, but yeah, oh, yeah. well, I mean that, that, I will not to try to touch the third rail on your channel, but I mean like. If if you if we actually for, first of all I think power is not going to be up for grabs under our present system, right? Because of the fact that the cathedrals is so dominant, mm. the, the, basically the intellectual bureaucracy is just so dominant, and and it, it's so much in the tank for the left side of the left right divide that there's not going to be some kind of ascendancy of right wing mm. thinkers inside this system. So the system is going to degrade and collapse. And it, what you hope for is you hope for buttressing elements to, to sort of stop the collapse from falling all the way down into chaos. Because once it hits chaos, then it will probably fall along the lines of race. Because people... Well, it's not going to I mean, fall along is, the lines of gender, I'll tell you that much. It, well, it can't. Well, gender is going to stop existing very quickly yeah. instead yeah. of chaos, right? Yeah. Uh, and... And uh, the, the the racial divisions would probably be prominent. Uh, I think that this is obviously something that I think would be an absolute disaster. Uh, and it's sort of the end bad state for me is a state of chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might be like this eye that we need, eye of the storm that we need to go through, but you know. Um, You're not, yeah, I, for I, it. You're I, not I, calling I, for it. You, you explicitly no. on your channel, you say, we do not want to go to civil war. This is a stupid oh, idea. No, of course person i mean like you can't i mean well i mean you can obviously we are we're kind of heading in that direction but we the the ideal thing is for is for well i mean the ideal thing is for like purple caesar to come in and just stop this process from continuing on uh second to that is some kind of uh very controlled emergency landing where sections divide off and separate each other so that you don't get dragged down uh, by the entire system. And it's hard to see how that would be accomplished, but, you know, people have ideas and then, you know, it kind of goes downhill from there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, r- race is scary because you can't get rid of it. And it's, it's, um, if you read history, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a dimension that will exist inside a chaotic uh, bella omni contra omnis. So um, hmm. that's that's the Latin for the war of all against all for listeners. Hmm. Um, so I, I worry about that a lot. You know, hmm. I think that uh, we'll we'll see what happens. But um, the the encouraging thing is, I think you're right. I think that the cancel culture has created a generation of right wing intellectuals that is a lot stronger. Uh, a lot more of them, certainly. And uh, I guess we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll see what happens. I think Substack is really helping out mm-hmm. right wingers generally at the stage. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I always 
see people trying to do things in various different artistic directions. I think that's also encouraging. Um, but well, we'll see what ultimately comes of it. Right now, I am an internet commenter and not myself an artist. So really, uh, well, I mean, I guess I there's artistry of internet commentary, and I certainly like in my own personal life have tried my hand at it. But I'm not like mm. I'm not I'm not trying to like scale the heights of of yeah. artistic delivery. Right. Um, uh, one thing I try to encourage people to do is sort of. Uh, do things like read poetry and this is uh, try to train yourself to appreciate art uh, because appreciating art is the first step to kind of embracing your humanity and, hmm. and the, those great poets out there, or even write a poem or two yourself, right? Uh, little things like that. Those things are going to matter ultimately more than, your relationship with some theoretical element of, of, of abstruse 19th century political philosophy. Well, were you saying uh, in uh, this week's live stream about you brought up Chapo trap house and they said, uh, somebody yeah. on there said that uh, clean your room. The whole Jordan Peterson thing is just about you, but if you join the cause, you will find ultimate purpose. You will find an ultimate reality if you join the cause if you participate in the political process and what you're saying with art with this little do nothing uh practice of writing a poem or trying to cr create a great tweet that that isn't about politics it's just a great <laughs> sentence just create a great sentence twitter poetry something. maybe yeah it could work right something like that that's what you're pointing to as a, as a first step towards uh, possessing a meaning that's not uh, beholden to power. Yeah, I mean, well, it's sort of funny because uh, this, this, was a, a, this was sort of a live stream by Matt Christman, or Christman, never know how to pronounce his name. He's one of the El Chapo guys. In 2000, in, I think it was either, I think it was early 2020, just before COVID. And... Um, the 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 funny thing is is that the right wing kind of agrees with him about Jordan Peterson. Uh, personal development isn't a solution to politics, and and the political the the politics will burn down everything true, good, and beautiful. Hmm. Uh, the, they'll smash your statues. They'll burn down your poems. Uh, they will ransack your temples. Um, but the the thing is is that the um, it's it, the difference is sort of subtle that I'm pointing to uh, it, it, the, the way, the way Jordan Peterson lays out the clean your room thing leaves out the, the great political crisis of our time. And the fact that he's in some sense trying to preserve a system that is uh, in many ways responsible for its own self-destruction and therefore cannot be saved from that self-destruction because the thing that it is, is causing itself to die. And therefore, because of that, Jordan Peterson's sort of clean your room, be part of the system thing is just not going to work in our age. At, at the same time, uh, the at the same time, if you just vary it slightly, then you kind of kind of come to what I consider to be a good formulation, mm -hmm. which is that um, you're, you're not cleaning your room to become part of the system. You're cleaning a room to separate yourself from the system. And to prove that 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 your belief in in this virtue and this beauty and this truth is is 
is um, it's, it's, it sort of exists outside the context of the civilization that itself is dying. Mm-hmm. The, the idea that political causes give you meaning, I think is, I mean, it's, it's sort of, the politics is dirty and politics is necessary, but it's, it's, politics is not generative. It does not actually produce the thing. It, it, is, it is sort of a second order effect. Men practice politics to defend their families. And as the poet Maculay would say, uh, defend, defending one's family in the temple of his gods, right? That's why men practice politics. But politics does not give you a family and, mm-hmm. and, and, and the gods to, to defend, or the god to defend, as I would. Mm-hmm. And, and because of that, um, you know, it's, it's very subtle, but uh, Matt, Matt Christman is both right and wrong in his statement he's trying to essentially say politics is necessary and it's your God. I'm what I'm saying is politics is necessary. Uh, so, you know, but, but politics is necessary, but ultimately futile in the face of history. So find a God, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, I guess that, that would be how I, I would correct it or find, find God, as I would put it. Mm-hmm. I keep on lapsing into pagan language because you that's do. how the poetry was that. Well, I'm, I'm referencing this famous um, poem, by the uh, was it the Baron Maculae? Um, uh, so in no relation to God's yeah. Yeah. No, he was a he was a British historian, uh, sort of a Whig from the early nineteenth century, and he wrote this famous passage: "How how better should a man give his life than in defense of his nation and the defense and the temples of his gods, or something to that effect?" I'm mm-hmm. I'm butchering the quote, but that's that's the quote. So uh, yeah. <laughs> Dave, can I call you Dave? Yeah, sure. On film, Dave. <laughs> I, th- I think your channel is one of the most uh, valuable channels on the internet that I've, uh, on YouTube specifically that I've found. So, uh, and, and it is absolutely a shame. The ContraPoints fans are correct in, in decrying the fact that you only have 35,000 <laughs> subscribers. It's insane. <laughs> you have such a, a low relative uh, number, but it, you deserve actually... much more. I I I use. Do you go through I, I and actually, prune your subscribers? You do like. No, I don't prune like... my subscribers. Everyone's <laughs> welcome, but uh, I'm I'm way too verbose for YouTube, and okay. I'm, I'm not living in the right age. I I actually am really happy about the emergence of Substack and what's going on okay. there. I think that we are going to enter into a renaissance of non-progressive creation. I don't know if it's going to create some kind of world art of epic importance, but I think it's going to create a lot of interesting scenes where people meet and genuinely go, let's just be human and see what truth that generates. Hmm. And I think that that, that will be uh, an emergence from spheres that are now called right wing and which may be called something entirely different in the future. Mm-hmm. Once it adopts the, uh, the, the leftist uh, sheepskin. <laughs> leftist <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, this is this is a speculation of mine that you could uh, you could pull a Napoleon and do this uh, sell sell people rightism with under the guise of leftism. But you know, he- Hegel was actually very wise. You know, his his work is theory is I can't follow it at all. But his the Im- the, the German idealistic uh, image of the thesis and the antithesis and the synthesis. Mm-hmm. Um, that has sort of this intuitive structure to it that is very true to reading to like a, a very organic reading of history. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why people use it again and again, because even though I have no idea why it's true, although I have some theories, 
it does just seem to be again and again throughout history, it, it just revivifies itself for whatever reason. Certainly none of the reasons that Hegel lays out because I can't follow any of them. <laughs> but but well, he was right nonetheless, right? That might give uh, some insight into the shape of your channel over the last six years or five or six years, uh, that you're in a dialectic with the left. You're in the dialectic with the centrists. You're always in dialectic. You're always mm-hmm. open to be change, changed by running towards that which you disagree with. And that, yes. that, that, there's that energy, there's that vitality even in, in your work because you're always engaging with the other side, whatever you see to be the other side, you're always going towards that, running toward that rather than away into your own enclave. Yeah. You always want to find what's weakest and go there. Hmm. Like you want to always find the conflict because the conflict emerges around the things that are weak hmm. and or not not weak, but the things that need to be fixed and repaired. Okay. And, and it, it focuses around the pieces of decision. The, the, my great difficulty is, um, well, I mean, this is sort of, I'm, this is sort of a confessional is that part of me just wants to dialectically tear leftists to pieces when I get into conversation with them. But another part of me kind of wants to invite them into a creative process of imagining something that comes after their ideas. Hmm. I don't think that there are any leftists that are really in this position and maybe there won't be for the remainder of my life, but maybe there will be, will be at some point there will be leftists. I guess there are, if you can include Angela Nag- Nagel and, and people like uh, that, then there are certain, the, the sort of post leftist crowd, right? Hmm. But it, it's the, the problem right now is there's so many intelligent people that are just completely cut off from the, the sort of observations about reality that I really want to talk about. And, and because of that, you know, it's, it's very difficult to know how it progresses forward. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I may, maybe that will come back. There was a brief period in 2017, 2019, where it felt like any conversation was on the table, but these days, uh, and any conversation is on the table when it comes to, you know, the spaces I inhabit. But in, in the main spheres where most eyeballs are located, you're you're kind of very much siloed into into predetermined conclusions, hmm. and and because of that, you know, it's hard to see how uh, the, these new things evolve directly from YouTube. Yeah. You know, you, they're probably going to evolve either in real life or on places like Substack. But I guarantee you, if you watch my YouTube channel, I'll tell you about them when I discover them. <laughs> um, so so stay tuned, don't, right? Don't underestimate people's uh, capacity for boredom, right? I, I, I have a lot of faith in people just getting bored of, of stupid discourse or activist discourse, as I, I think it, because it's really exciting in the moment, but then it leads to a bunch of ruinous uh, cities and then policies. And then like, what did you have for participating in the sloganeering and stuff? Like people want, people want nourishment. I, I think that's one of the... Uh, yeah, true but... truths of, of uh, the, the church is that people want nourishment. People want to be forgiven. People want to render themselves up to a higher power. Yeah. They're, and this is just preserving. This that. is actually a fascinating conversation. It's a part I'm a hard time ending it because we keep on hitting these very uh, interesting <laughs> right. points, but, um, it'll be, this is interesting because uh, you are absolutely right in an intellectual sense. Like boredom is a tool 
like you have this dialectic and there are certain dialectics like doctrine in the Catholic church where you just enthrone them and they become kind of hosannas and you repeat them over again, like mantras because they don't need to change and they're not expected to change. But then there's the boredom generated by the intellectual idea that does like, it's supposed to generate something hmm. uh, that's like very, very edifying and, and it's not supposed to stay the same, but it never, it never hatches. It's just the same thing over and over again, sort of like the new atheism stuff. Um, which I consider like a good example of an intellectual dead end. And um, the problem is there, there's that. And, and boredom is a great solution for that because uh, the most intelligent people, once, once an intellectual idea doesn't deliver what it promises, uh, they'll get bored of it and they'll leave and that will cause a cascading preference effect. But that's not true for things that are like drugs. And this is the thing, like, you know, I remember this conversation I had with, um, you know, um, my dear sweet boomer mother. And I was talking to her people about like the problem of internet and porn addiction. And uh, she's like this very boomer kind of like 1960s, everyone should do what they want, typical blue stater. And, and she had this idea, this is a very long time ago, that people would kind of like, oh, people just use porn and then they'll get bored of it. <laughs> Or like, don't, aren't people going to get bored of this transgender stuff? And then they'll just stop doing it. They'll get, they'll get bored of it after a while. And, or people will get bored of this whole politics thing. And uh, like pornography, I'll, I'll t- stay off the third rails. I'll, 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 I won't talk about transgenderism or, or politics or, or, or these other drugs. Or I'll talk about pornography because it's easier to see. Um, like you don't get, your body doesn't get bored of pornography. It just gets tired of sex. Like you just you hit this um, thing, like, and I, I, I'm, I wasn't always Catholic, and I regret ever falling into this trap. So, but I am describing something that I, a trap that I was caught in, right? Like you hit these dopamine receptors, and it's not like you don't get bored of porn and then like go date girls. Like you, you get bored of porn and then you get more intense porn and more intense porn and more intense porn, and the whole like dating girls kind of like recedes into the background of your life like because it's hard and mm-hmm. and um you know this is a are any and, and sort of you end at, at the end of this process it's not like this organic shifting away uh, of healthy boredom it's like the burnout of getting addicted to a drug and this receptor in your body is just not working anymore because it can't work anymore because you maxed it out mm. and and there, it's not like there's no coming back from that, but coming back from that is not such a smooth process. It's really the recovery after a crash. Hmm. And the question is what leftists are going to move away from leftism organically, like it's an intellectual promise that's not fulfilled. And how many of them are going to just, it's like, this is a dopamine generator because it makes them feel like they're wielding political power and they're just going to jam this thing until like either 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 again best case scenario it becomes a religion and i can't believe me describing the creation of heretical religion as a best case scenario but there you go right <laughs> best case scenario like they literally make george floyd jesus that they literally like create hasanas to him and then like they 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 tell everyone that george floyd commands you to to be like a faithful spouse and have families and send your kids to the evangelical church of George Floyd. And then like a new faith is born and like, but like their human cycle of biology is still like 
the the healthy regulations are still given to them by this new faith, yeah. or they're just going to like jam libertinism and like power politics until their receptors for the stuff are just burnt out. And they're sitting there in their forties and fifties going, hmm. God, I wonder, I'm, I remember when the stuff still felt vital. And I wonder, I wonder what's next in my life. Like, can there be anything next? And you, know, you can totally come back from that. Pe- people do all the time, but that's not the same process. Hmm. It's not such a smooth transition. And uh, I, I tell people all the time, I mean, our society is going to need a lot of forgiveness to recover from all the mistakes we've been making over the last 20 years. Just with this transgender stuff alone, I, I'm looking at the amount of people who are on this detransitioned lifestyle, and it's uh, including some I've seen on your channel. And, um, you know, trying to imagine, you know, for, for I, I know you're much more compassionate than I am. I could see like you're very much sympathizing with them. And I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking of a different problem. I'm thinking, okay, so. Here are sort of like the 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 Mencius mole bug Bronze Age pervert like minimal viable religion. This is sort of the society like the most open society we can create that still allows humans to reproduce themselves and thrive and create families and continue for the future with all of the vivacity and and thriving that we're used to. And then there's like then there's this person who's totally burnt out at the end of this detransition, and like how can I get these two things to meet, right? Mm-hmm. Like how how can you reincorporate them in a healthy society with all of its necessary regulations and all of its necessary moral pronouncements, and how do you stop them from being treated like they would be treated inside a society that would exist in the 19th century? Mm-hmm. Because you know a, a detransitioner, if you transported them back to the 19th century. It's not just in their imagination that they'd be treated as a freak. Like that objection is not incorrect, right? The, the, the way the 19th century would treat those people would be to make their lives miserable so that you could teach the children not to follow them, right? No. It would be brutal, right? Mm. It would be brutal. And I don't, I don't want that brutality, but at the same time, I don't want people to follow them. And the question is, like, how do you how do you come up with a compassion a compassionate way uh, to 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 integrate people oh, like gosh. that? Well, at the same time, you're going to make me do uh, it. Yeah, you're going to make me say this. <laughs> yeah, what would Jesus do? Um, well, we know how did, what how did be- G- yeah, how would Jesus pre- uh, treat a prostitute? Or a woman who kept on bleeding from her open. Wound. Yeah, but but yeah, okay, sure. Like Jesus, Jesus. Jesus would absolutely have compassion for the woman who's the prostitute, but he absolutely did preach eternal punishment and eternal consequence. And so like, there are these two, there's these two facets of, of, of Mm. like, Jesus was not below uh, telling people scary stories to set them on the the straight and narrow. Right. Mm. He was compassionate to every individual he met uh, radically. So in my opinion, yeah. Uh, but there's, there's the component of, of judgment that, that is kind of forgotten by our modern understanding of Jesus that is nonetheless sort of this critical capacity you know, to I, the figure th- of Christ. That goes back to what I, what I sense as the reaction from the centrist liberals to reactionary thought. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's the same weakness that gives them uh, no antibodies to wokeness, or they can have personal antibodies, but they have no uh, way to, to counter it spreading, um, is, is judgment. It, it comes down to 
being judgmental. And I think that we have 50 years of media that, that has slandered in every major, probably most major uh, television and movies, the, the authoritative father, the, the, the dark father. Like that, that's one of our fears is to be that, the man. We don't want to be the man. We want to live in a society where the man is distributed, right? Where, where, where judgment is soft yeah. and tender and stuff. And I, I don't, I can't, I can't perform that role myself with the cohort that you're talking about with the detransitioners, but I can say that th- they face that judgment in and of themselves. They, they witness that in their own body. They don't need I it. have nothing but sympathy. I might, I want to make this clear. I have nothing but sympathy for those people. Like I have nothing. And then, and they provide witness when they tell their stories, they're providing testimony that this is not the answer. They're they're doing the work that a 19th century society would try to do upon them by just being honest and authentic and saying, this is what happened. And these are the ideas that led me here. These ideas are wrong and look what they did to me. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is, and and in some sense, the detransitioners are, the living, I mean, they're literally the literal embodiment of our own civilization made flesh. Yeah, they are. Uh, like they are. And, and all the you know, vital parts be cut off. Yeah, exactly. And like no one represents the state of our civilization better than the detransitioners. And, and, and in some sense, they are, they are the ultimate archetype of our age and the ultimate heroes of our age, more heroic than anything I've ever done, certainly. And uh, the, What's so funny is I, I, I don't know, like, this is the thing, right? Like, I want to tell people in that position that, you know, we can, we can, we can reinstitute per, the, the paternalistic tight feedback loop, as Nick Land would put it, like, that in, in, bo- in a way that's both firm but gentle, right? Hmm. That, that, that's going to be, you know, civilization will snap back in this sort of controlled demolition and we'll be able to rebuild in, in, in a way that's, you know, not, not everyone that might make it through the eye of a needle, but no one's going to, uh, no one's going to get sent to uh, the, the lake of fire at the same time. It will be a purgatorial journey, uh, right? But there's some doctors that I wouldn't mind. Yeah, yeah exactly. Them. But, 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 like, but, but, but for, for our civilization, like the, the, the state of collapse will be a purgatorial journey through the eye of the needle and we will never touch like pure chaos but then I just, I think of like, okay, what, what does history actually show us? And like reading history and looking at what, you know, spiritual masters thought, like there's, there's a hard edge there that, that really kind of scares me. Probably doesn't scare me enough, actually. Otherwise I'd, I'd be less selfish in my own life. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, what I say is like, I, I want to hope for this, but I can't, I don't feel like I can, I can honestly promise us uh, 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 such an easy transition uh, civilizationally or, or individually through mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, for, for people who, who found themselves in this position. But uh, yeah, that's, that, that is what it is, I guess. Dave, we should, we should wrap up. Yes. Uh, this has been Thank you so much for for letting me uh, speak with you. Your channel is amazing. And could you tell us if you know where you're headed with it? Like, what are you going to be oh, doing? Yeah. What's what's the product pipeline now? Plug oh, your um, work, basically. Yeah. So, I mean, okay. My 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 work is well. I'm probably going to be writing like just physically. I have my podcast that's every Tuesdays, and that's just 
basically me speaking about a topic and then I'm writing on Substack. And again, I don't do this professionally. So my time doing it is a little bit yeah. more limited than it was in 2018 and 2000, 2018, 2018 and early 2019, this big gap where I basically did it uh, semi-professionally. Hmm. And, um, but so I can't make stuff like that anymore, but I will continue to do that directionally with thematics though. Uh, I imagine I'm going to be making a pretty big, not a pretty big break, but a somewhat of a break because I feel that Aaron McIntyre and uh, other creators in his group have just so thoroughly, um, you know, part of my brand back in the day was I was the guy who was talking, one of, one of the few people talking about this uh, elite theory or, or neo-reactionary stuff. And R.M. McIntyre just does that so much better than I do. And more importantly, he does that so much more concisely and wittily than I do that I can't fulfill that role. So I'm probably going to probably going to be focusing more on culture and um, this concept of, of vitalism inside and in, in, it'll intersect with politics because it has to, but I'd like to think that my work will try to move more in that direction uh, still addressing contemporary issues, but but trying to keep it m- off of how do we create a perfect political model and mm-hmm. more on how how do we recapture what truly makes us human, kind of live that in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I hope my work is going to be going. Uh, do you would you consider continue to speak to other creators and stuff? I loved your oh yeah. Uh, conversation with uh, Sargon. That wasn't that Sar- long ago. Was, it was just yeah. Ago. So I hope you. Continue. Probably Sargon and I are going to be talking pretty regularly, actually. Great. Great. I, I actually, I, I really miss, you know, the problem is I, I love talking to you and I love talking to Aaron and I love talking to Sargon. Um, and I have other friends that I talk to all the time. I, I kind of actually miss getting into like a contentious Sports. argument. It's been ages. It's been <laughs> ages since I've talked to an actual left winger. And I feel, I almost mm. feel that not getting into a big intellectual scrap is kind of letting my intellectual blade dull a little bit. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I should hop onto one of these horrible, like soul crushing, bread tube politics panels. <laughs> Please do. Uh, yeah, that would be do. hilarious. Though, put yourself no, in, the, the, the panel way. crowd. But 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 I should I should do a contentious competition would be really fun. So yeah. maybe in the future sometime. Excellent. Well, let's end the recording there, Dave. Thank you so much. And and could you say into the microphone your Substack name, just so people who are just listening? Oh, uh, yes. So, well, first of all, before I sign off, thank you very much. It was a very stimulating conversation. You asked amazing questions. My Substack is Fiddler's Green or Letters from Fiddler's Green. And my podcast, which airs on the YouTube channel, The Distributist, is called Broadcast from Fiddler's Green spelled in an unusual way so that it can be kind of my own. So uh, there you go. Uh, one, thanks very one thing, much. One thing that I didn't ask you and I'm not going to ask you, but I'll put it in the recording is that we still don't know what a distributist is. <laughs> yeah. So and that's, I, history. I, yeah, it's a, well, they, they, they wrote lots of books on that, but I don't know if many distributists themselves know the answer to that question <laughs> from my reading, but anyway. Excellent. Okay. Thanks a lot. So-